Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of San Diego Comic Con 2023, starting uh, tomorrow as this is being released, July 19th with Preview Night, running four days through the weekend. I will be there. My schedule's insane. That being said, be sure you follow the Comic Source on social media. If you're going to be there, you want to meet up, say hi. I will have Comic Source lanyards to give away. Um, so yeah, hope to see a lot of you there. I have a lot. I have so many interviews and meetings lined up. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. Some big announcements are coming. I've been privy to a few that uh, will be announced at the show. They're really exciting. So uh, yeah, looking looking forward to it. Hope, hope to live tweet some DC panels. I just It's going to be tough to squeeze panels in. Uh, I have so many people reaching out that want to meet up and have interviews. So it's kind of tough to go sit in a panel room for an hour when I could accomplish three or four other things in that same hour. But I, I love the DC panels. I love the energy. There's nothing quite like San Diego. One of these years, we're going to get rocky out there as well. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, other than New York Comic Con, there's no place where you can go to meet as many creators that are actively working in the medium as, as San Diego. And San Diego is a little different animal. New York is close when it comes to active creators. Yeah. But you get a little more international creators at New York where you get a little bit more of the West Coast people at uh, at San Diego. So it's a, it's a really good time. And unlike New York Comic-Con where – and don't get me wrong, I love NYCC. But when you step out of the convention, it's just regular New York City, right? There's not a lot. You wouldn't really know anything's going on. When you are in San Diego and Comic-Con's going on, even if you don't go near it, even if you don't go, get within five miles, you know it's going on because there are so yeah. many activities all the way around the city. And then the closer you get to the convention center, there's activations, there's you know, these immersive uh, events where you go, like I just got an invite today to go to one for Quantum Leap. You run through, it's like a 12 minute thing and you're immersed in the world of the Quantum Leap TV show. And usually there's like a souvenir or something you need to keep. So there's all kinds of stuff like that. Um, we've had done Jack Ryan ones in the past. And um, the one last year was for the... Uh, that Netflix movie that had um, Chris Evans in it. I can't remember the main, can't remember the other guy that was in it, but it was a couple of uh, big stars. Uh, was it, it was Ryan, what's his name? The guy that was in Drive. Yeah, Ryan, Ryan Gosling. That's it, Ryan right. Gosling yeah. and Chris Evans. They had a big activation for that. So right. Uh, anyway, really looking forward to it. If you're going to be there, uh, try to hit me up. If you're not, then be sure you're following on social media so you can uh, – See all the, the events. I'll be, li like, like I said, live tweeting, dropping, retweeting uh, exclusive announcements and what have you. So, uh, But a great week. It, it's tough, the week of San Diego. So many of the books that come out <laughs> on the day that San Diego launches sort of get lost in the shuffle. I want to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, as we always do. But there are a lot of great books this week. Uh, maybe a little bit, for me, of a step back for the Night Terrors book. I felt like first week was kind of weak, obviously, no pun intended. Second week got better. This week is not as bad as the first week, but I don't think it was as good as last week. So anyway, what, what are your thoughts on the uh, the books this week, Rocky, overall? Uh, well, this week, uh, first of all, I'm jealous uh, you're going to San Diego. That's fantastic. I do hope you live tweet. I think that would be awesome. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your interview with, uh, listening to your interview with Jimmy Palmiotti. I love Jimmy Palmiotti, and I'll be supporting his Trigger, Trigger 6 uh, Kickstarter. But uh, – 
I'm sure I encourage people to check out uh, the Comic Sources uh, interview with uh, Jason's interview with Jimmy Palmiotti. Uh, as for DC this week, I, I'm disappointed with this week's uh, Night Terrors. Uh, it's the same sort of same reasons as I've, gi- I've given in past weeks, although there's there's maybe a couple highlights. I'll, I'll do my best to pull out uh, some of the positives uh, because some of the writers managed to make some lemonade out of out of lemons, maybe a little bit from being kind. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, some of the new ones, uh, some of the new titles here. I, I was I was impressed with. I like static. I enjoyed static and I really enjoyed the vigil and um and uh, beyond that, I was I was actually disappointed with uh, the premiere of Hawkgirl, and I wasn't uh, particularly impressed with, uh, um, uh, well, I, actually, World's Finest I thought was kind of meh this week as well. But uh, and Harley Quinn, black, white, and redder just seems to be more of the same sort of we get from Harley Quinn, for, in my opinion. But so I was this week was a little bit of a downer for me, I think overall. But I, I still enjoyed reading it. I mean, I, I find I, I choose to find the joy in these comic books. You know, there's enough uh, negativity out there. Let's let's have some fun. <clears throat> yeah, I've been catching up on a, a lot of reading. I'll talk about it at the end. A couple of other non-DC books that I'll mention that I've been people have been talking about. I finally got caught up on them. That, that really blew me away. But let's dive into DC first. Uh, I was tweeting about this yesterday after I read it. Static. Shadows of Dakota, issue number five, written by Nicholas Draper Ivy and Vita Ayala, art by Draper Ivy, letters by Anvil Design. Um, and I was saying how awesome it was, and it felt like such a great buildup to the finale. And uh, Nicholas reached out to me on Twitter. He goes, you know, thanks for the kind words, but uh, there's two issues left. So I, that hasn't actually been announced by DC. Uh, so, I'm again, I'm expecting that announcement to come at San Diego Comic-Con, I guess. It was originally announced as a six issue. I'm glad there's two issues left. I, I, I sort of feel like the way it's been paced, they probably could finish in one more issue, but if I, if there's two, then, Hey, that's great. I actually wish this was an ongoing because I feel like Draper Ivy and Vita Ayala have a really good uh, connection to static and especially Nicholas. I know that static and, and writing, you know, he's mostly known for his art. And I think this is the first thing he's written. He's obviously he's co-writing it with, with Vita and they're a very talented writer. Um, but I would almost say at this point, Nicholas could probably go on his own and keep this going. Uh, I d- obviously, I don't know what the sales are like. I don't know what Milestone's you know, format is, if they even want to have ongoings or if it's always going to be this sort of seasonal approach. But I was very impressed with the book, uh, especially with the type of emotion that was built up. We know that Quincy was killed, this young boy that uh, Virgil Hawkins was mentoring, Static was mentoring. Um not as a hero, but just as a student, as a person, a young man of color, and his death was shocking and very impactful. And I thought Draper Ivy and Ayala did a fantastic job of showing the, the consequences, the trauma, the emotions. Um, it just seemed very real to me. So I have a feeling that unfortunately, there's a lot of persons of color that can probably relate to this in terms of you know, having lost somebody at a, at a, at a young age. Maybe it's not for these exact reasons, as in, you know, because superpowers and bang babies and that sort of thing. But, you know, a lot of those people live uh, in underserved neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence and uh, and gang activity and they can get caught in, in the crossfire. So, again, relevant, impactful, emotional. The art by uh, Draper Ivy, 
the, both the line work and the colors are fantastic. Getting to see more of this Eben character, uh, very much an anti-hero um, and kind of seeing his perspective. He's, he's the type of villain that I enjoy the most in that he's not just two-dimensional. You understand his motivations. You might not necessarily agree with the decisions he makes or the actions he's taking in order to achieve his goals, but you understand, you understand why. I mean, his brother has been kidnapped, you know, there, but for the grace of God, his brother would be, you know, in the same situation that Quincy was in, uh, where he was killed. So uh, he's trying to do whatever he can to save his brother. You can understand that. Uh, And that comes across again, fantastic, really impactful. I was really impressed. Uh, And yeah, like I said, I hope, I hope we get more of static in the hands of, uh, of Nicholas. He's going to be at San Diego. Um, Don't know if I'm going to get a chance to meet him. I've never met him. I hope, I hope to, I hope to get a chance to meet him and talk to him and maybe even have him on the show to talk some static. So we'll see. Uh, What were your thoughts on this issue, Rock? I thought that, uh, I thought that uh, Vita Ayala here uh, scripted some great scenes that were very emotionally impactful. I, I, you know, you said it yourself. Uh, the death of Quincy last issue that that was shocking, and you know, in in comic books, we're accustomed to death not meaning much, but I get the sneaking suspicion Quincy's staying dead here. This is very real. Uh, now, maybe Quincy might end up, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure Quincy's going to stay dead here. It certainly feels that way. And I guess that's the most important thing. This doesn't feel like a like a forced death. This feels it came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, and damn it, uh, probably thanks to the uh, incredible visuals by uh, Nicholas Draper Ivy, uh, Quincy was not only he was a good looking, cute kid, he was also a genius. He was likable. And then all of a sudden he's killed in such a pointless death. There's a conversation between Virgil and his mother, Virgil, uh, Virgil Hawkins, who is static. His mother is a nurse. She can relate to what it's like to lose somebody. She's lost patients and she's lost children, child, children, patients. And uh, she knows that, you know, she, she has a, you know, a, she comforts Virgil as, as, as he weeps. And there's just beautiful art by uh, uh, Nicholas Draper Ivy as he just, it's complete silence. And uh, Vida Ayala lets, uh, lets, uh, um, Draper Ivy's art speak for itself, speak for the sorrow, the sense of loss, the sense of guilt that Virgil feels because he never did enough. He's filled with hurt, rage, and guilt. He feels he failed Quincy uh, because Quincy was was very much related to the Bang Babies, just like uh, just like he was. And then Virgil even goes so far as to talk to Quincy's parents, and that's heartbreaking as well. And you know, and then add to that, Virgil Hawkins. His approach to this is Virgil is filled with hatred, is filled with uh, is rage, and he's angry, but he's not filled necessarily with revenge. Virgil Hawkins is filled with regret, but the Ebon character, Eben character, who, whose brother Adam is kidnapped by this group that wants to kill all the Bang Babies, he's filled with vengeance and anger and, and hatred, and he utilizes lethal force. So this is the old story. You know, revenge of your enemies. Do you kill them or do you let them live? It's, 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 you know, Vida Ayala has done a really good job here of taking that, it, what could be construed as a trope in if, if the story was not handled properly and handling it very, very well because, because it, this is character work that works. You can sympathize with the bad guy and the good guy here. And the bad guy, it's hard to get angry with Evan when he's killing these terrorists that have killed, uh, Quincy, uh, because we loved Quincy and, 
Eben is doing something using lethal force that Virgil Hawkins did not want it would would never do. And so part of me, the darker side of me is sort of, you know, moving toward the dark side, which just goes to show uh, as a compliment to Vedaella to making me feel and care for these characters, even the ones that are on the dark side. And and then at the end where uh, Eben goes to Virgil because he needs Virgil's powers to help break into the lab where his brother Adam is being held. That's how it ends on a cliffhanger. This promises to be a hell of an ending and you can just tell that in the in the final issue here that's that this is leading into that that we're going to have a significant moral dilemma and those those two uh two opposing forces in terms of how you deal with terrorists do you kill them or do you let them live at what point do you cross that line will virgil will virgil hawkins be manipulated enough by evan or will evan turn to the to the bright side or the light side of things it's uh <laughs> it's really good i'm i'm very impressed and this is uh one of my candidates for a pick of the week <clears throat> i haven't decided yeah. yet yeah, I agree. And and remember, everybody, there's actually, like I said, two issues left, not just one. Don't know why they haven't announced okay. it yet. Uh, but yeah, two issues left. We need a Draper Ivy. And I give credit. Every time I, I talk about this book and give credit to Vita for their great writing, they always push back and say, well, Nicholas is co-writing. Don't forget, Nicholas is doing a fantastic job helping me plot this story. They're giving Nicholas all the credit. So don't, don't know what the division of labor is on the writing chores. Uh, but again, if this is... If, if Nicholas is doing the heavy lifting on the writing, uh, then yeah, all kudos to him because he's killing it both from a narrative perspective and a visual perspective. So I uh, can't wait to see. I, I I was sort of anticipating and excited that there was only one issue left because I want the end of the story. But when I heard there was two issues left, I wasn't disappointed because in a way I don't want I don't want this creative team's run to end. So I have, I have sort of mixed feelings because I do want to know how it ends. Uh, when you when you talk about the moral dilemma, because it's definitely setting up a situation where, yeah, Virgil might have to make a choice. And he even says to his mom, you know, when he's having that heartbreaking conversation, he's he's like, maybe I was wrong not to 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 take them out, you know, not to kill them, because Quincy would still be here, you know. I I stopped Eben from killing them. You know, he's questioning, you know, what the right thing is. And obviously his mother's, you know, he, he, that's not the violence is not the answer. You can't the ends don't justify the means, basically, is uh, mm -hmm. is how she's putting it. So, all right, moving on. Uh, we have the conclusion of the elementary storyline in World's Finest Batman Superman. Mark Wade is the writer. Dan Mora, artist. Tamara Bondalan does the colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, you said you were a little disappointed in this, Rocky. Give us your thoughts. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I shouldn't be. I, I I guess I should apologize to Mark Wade because uh, this was this was well written, and it, it. I just thought it was. I actually. I guess it was because I got lucky and I predicted the ending. <laughs> I actually predicted it, uh, but. When I think about it and I reflect on it more as I'm talking to you, uh, that's actually a compliment to Mark Wade because he planted enough seeds in terms of how uh, Numazo and the, and uh, what I know of Amazo, uh, it, it made sense. I knew Numazo could absorb powers. So I, I did actually theorize that getting the old Amazo in and that they could cancel each other out in the final battle. And that's actually what happened. So I actually totally fluked off the ending and I disappointed myself because it was like, I'm usually not someone who can guess the ending, although, you know what I mean? So it was like, I felt it was a little bit uh, almost predictable, but then I realized, hey man, Mark Wade, Mark Wade wrote this the way it should end and, and he did write, Batman did figure it all out and the it is absolute, it is action packed, all right? It deals with all, there's 
every hero is in this comic book, not just f- to be part of the pretty pictures of uh, Dan Mora, but they actually have something to do, whether it's Supergirl, uh, Martian Manhunter, Robin, uh, uh, Green Lantern. I mean, there's, it's, there's, everyone has something to do, and there's a lot at stake here, and they, they can't defeat Numazo. They can't. Uh, the, uh, Batman has uh, Tio Moro's uh, satellite activate a virus that slows down Numazo or activates a signal that slows down Numazo because uh, part of Numazo's programming originates with the metal men. And so uh, there might be a, a way, there was a way to sort of slow him down and counter the programming. I'm oversimplifying it, but that was just in a nutshell. But that wasn't enough. Uh, but Batman finally figured out something that Tio Moro hinted at something in his past. And then Batman figured out, ah, oh, it's old, the original Amazo. Even though the original Amazo is like a blunt hammer, this new Amazo 2.0 is like super intelligent. So he's superior to the old Amazo. But they have one thing in common, and that is they absorb and they can read another entity's powers and duplicate them. And so essentially, it became a feedback loop. They duplicated each other at the end and they eventually destroyed each other and in a nice callback at the end uh, Batman and all the heroes let Metamorpho get the killing blow uh, to destroy New Amazo and there's no problem with uh, literally destroying New Amazo because he's not actually human so you can literally kill New Amazo and you're not no, no one's violating any code against killing. So, I, you know, it, it was good. It was good. I just, uh, in a rare moment of uh, accuracy, I actually guessed the ending. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's not bad. But what about yourself? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I agree with you. It was a little bit sort of, sort of paint by the numbers. Uh, you knew Batman, you know, or, or even if you didn't guess what, what exactly the solution was, you know, getting the old Amazo, to take out the new Mezo. Um It's telegraphed pretty early on within the first couple of pages of this issue that Batman's going to figure it out, right? He's Batman is going to figure it out. But in the meantime, we get some great action scenes. We get some great fighting scenes. The other thing, you, you know, you kind of touched on it. Everybody, every hero that's in this book, and there's a lot of them, you know, from Supergirl to Green Lantern to John Jones, everybody's in here for a reason, right? They don't just show up kind of like a Brian Michael Bendis book where everybody's got to say something in every panel and there's not a reason for them to, to be there. Uh, everybody has a reason for being here. And uh, I just love the way Mark juggles it and gives not, not everybody. There's not room to give every single hero in here a moment, uh, but there's enough. There's even a moment where uh, Billy Batson, Captain Marvel is who's been referring to himself as Shazam for the longest time in the books and they call it Power of Shazam or they call it Shazam all because they DC let the trademark lapse and now Marvel owns the trademark to Captain Marvel, <laughs> uh, which is now Carol Danvers, obviously not uh, Marvel. Um, but they're not allowed to, to call. Uh, they're not allowed to have a title. And it's funny. So sometimes they call him the captain. Sometimes they call him cap. But that, that's all been Mark Wade, right? Writing the recent Shazam stories. And then here um, – he says, ah, you know, call me Captain. And before he can finish saying Marvel, another hero interrupts him. So little tongue, tongue in cheek, little Mark Wade having some fun. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's really fun. The action is uh, really depicted well by Dan Mora. His art is very, very kinetic, fantastic covers. So, yeah, it might not have been the most original ending. It might have been a little predictable. But, man, you can tell Mark Wade is having a ton of fun with yeah. this book. And it's nice to have a book like this coming out 
to remind us how fun DC comics are in the midst of this night terror event, which is, it can be a little depressing, you know, even last week when the books were, were kind of a step up in quality, it's still dark. It's still nightmares. It's still, you know, not exactly a fun, fantastical time, which is sort of what you want from, uh, from a DC comic. So yeah, big fan, love the tease that we're getting the return of boy thunder who speculation is it could be the young version of, uh, Magog, the villain, I guess we'll call him villain. Well, we'll call him the antagonist of Mark Wade's kingdom come, kingdom come, uh, run, uh, with Alex Ross. That's uh, an evergreen DC title. So, uh, all right, moving on. Hawk girl. Number one, written by Jadzia Axelrod, drawn by Amon K. Nahilipin, colored by Adriana Lucas, lettered by Hassan Atsman Elhow. Um, I know you said you were a little disappointed in this and you know, obviously I won't speak for you. You can, you can let us know your thoughts, but for me, I thought this was a pretty interesting start for somebody who's not as familiar with hot girl. So I wasn't really reading comics and wasn't reading, um, certainly JSA in the late nineties when, when, uh, Kira, Kendra Saunders came around, uh, for me, hot girl's going to be Shira Hall. So I'm not, you know, as familiar and she's shown up in various places here or there, weekly earth two uh, series and what have you. So I actually did for the first time, did a little research into the, the origin of Kendra Saunders and was shocked, was shocked, was shocked. Yeah. Like we, we have uh, people being sexually assaulted. We have people committing suicide. We have Kendra herself attempting to like, she's been through some stuff. She you also know, has a son. Stuff. Yeah, she has a son that she gave up for adoption. I think she had her son. She's seventeen. Like she's been through a lot. I had yeah. no idea, no <laughs> idea. Like much more yeah. like a an indie or a Marvel character in that there's so much darkness in her origin. So, uh, I it gives me insight into the character. Again, I I just never went back. I, I just I don't know what I thought. I thought that she was just kind of like an Earth Two version. Um, you know, like when the Earth 2 versions uh, in that Earth 2 series that Tom Taylor wrote uh, that, that had uh, Nicholas Scott art. I just thought she was that. She was just a different version. She just came from Earth 2, and that's just, you know, similar origin to uh, to, uh, to uh, Sherrick Carter, but that's not, that's not the case at all. So she's got a lot of stuff to explore, um, and so I kind of liked that She's still trying to, even though she's older now, you know, late twenties, early thirties, she really hasn't had the opportunity. She hasn't had a series to focus on her and her character to really sort of discover like who she is now. Um, there's even hints that she might be bisexual. Uh, she doesn't even really know. Uh, so yeah, I like the fact that there's stuff there to be explored. And again, maybe somebody who has more history with the character might feel a little differently, uh, but for me, I thought it was uh, it was a really strong start. Um, I didn't read the Galaxy Girl. Um, I think it was a, in the YA line from the same writer, Axelrod. I didn't read that. So having her show up here, uh, it I don't want to say it felt self-serving. but it, and, and again, I don't blame Axelrod for bringing this character in. Somebody they created, somebody they're very familiar with. But it, it did. it felt like a little bit of an odd fit. But, you know, we'll see how it all uh, plays out in the end. But the other thing was the art by Nahulapan was just fantastic. And we sort of expect good coloring from Adriana Lucas. 
and we weren't disappointed here at all. Um, so the, the art visually very strong. Uh, I never really have thought of, um, of hot girl as being sexy before. I mean, she's drawn attractively for sure, but not somebody where I'd be like, Oh man, she's drawn really hot. She's drawn really hot in this book. Even when she's sort of incapacitated at the end, uh, this splash page, uh, yeah, she still looks good, even even though she's laying there unconscious. Uh, there's also an earlier uh, time in the book where she meets up with an old college friend and has a little bit of an awkward interaction. She stands up to leave, and she's wearing like a, a shirt that shows a little bit of her midriff, and she's got the six-pack going on. It's like, man, she's in way better shape than I am. Uh, but yeah, I, I <laughs> visually, visually. Does that surprise you? <laughs> no, not at all. She's a seven-year-old. Of course, she's in better shape than you. We're, we're middle-aged white guys. She better be in better shape than us. <laughs> yeah, never, never had a six-pack in my life, even when I was in shape. But yeah, I, I just I was really impressed. I, I, and maybe again, it goes back to my curiosity and being a little less familiar with the character that I'm discovering her for the first time. Um, <laughs> But again, it's only the first issue. We'll see how it all plays out. There are some some. Uh, there's an interesting villain that we're introduced to, tying back to nth metal and that sort of thing. So a lot of seeds planted, a lot of interesting threads. Um, I, I'm probably most curious about this book than any DC debut, any series in the dawn of DC. I'm then th- this is probably the book I'm most curious about to see how it's received from others. Hawk, Hawkman, Hawk Girl, they don't have the the largest following in terms of being, you know, well known outside of comic readers. And then even within comic readers, they're not the you know, they don't have the biggest fan base. Part of it because their their urgents are so convoluted. And that's another thing. Like Hawkman and Hawk Girl with their reincarnations and different iterations and trying to clean it up with crisis, or whatever, they really screwed it up. All credit to Robert Venditti for making that make sense. Just absolutely amazing that he was able to make that make sense. But it's a barrier to entry for the Hawks. It's hard to understand and follow. It's a lot to ask for people to to go and dig back through. So you would think when they decide, DC decided back in the late 90s, hey, we're going to create another Hawk girl, Kendra Saunders. Let's make her origin a little more straightforward. No, they make it just as convoluted. Um, And then it goes back to the other thing, you know, her being by the soul or essence or life force, whatever you want to call it, of uh, of Shara Hall. And then the whole confusion where we've seen, and again, I'm not giving anybody a bad time and it's other issues going on with editorial and what have you. Continuity is not always the best in DC Comics. But so many people make the assumption that it's hot girl, she's Thanagarian. Kendra Saunders is not Thanagarian. She's a human. Uh, She's been possessed by Thanagarian before, but she herself is Thanagarian. So um, again, just, I understand the barrier to entry. I understand people, even longtime DC fans don't want to read about the Hawks because it's too confusing. So yeah, say all that to say, I'm most curious to see how this is received, especially Tim from the Hawk World uh, Twitter account. He is by far the biggest Hawkman fan that I know, wrote the Hawkman, co-wrote the Hawkman Companion. So uh if he gives us his stamp of approval, then yeah, hundred percent, it's it's good stuff. If he doesn't, well, I'm going to keep reading it because again, I'm not that familiar with this version of Hot Girl, and this feels like it's off to a good start for me. So, anyway, give us your thoughts, Rocky. Uh, I know oh. you're much more familiar with her than uh, than I am. Well, she's Senegarian. 
unless if they've changed that, they, she's Stanagarian. That's one thing Bendis never got right. That's one thing even Scott Snyder screwed up on, and which he admitted. Uh, but it's it's really not a big deal. It's not a big deal whether she dreamt it or whatever. It's just that's just not a big deal. Uh, I will say this. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I like. I agree that there's a lot of interesting plot threads introduced here with with this. Uh, I will give uh, Jed's uh, Jadzi Axelrod some credit in terms of. Uh, uh, she made early on that, that Hawkman wasn't part of this story. And I, I guess I can kind of see that because one of the things that's established in the past is that just understand that Hawkman and Hawkgirl were always connected because they were always killed and born again, uh, going back to Hathset. Hathset was always reincarnated and they were born in different lifetimes and they kept being reincarnated and then killed. And then, then that, that curse was eventually lifted so that the soul of, of, Ken, of, of Kendra Saunders or whether it's Shiera and Hawkman, that's, that's all been they're basically free of all that baggage and Robert Venditti touched upon it too that that curse of 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 Hawkman being in, reincarnated in multiple lifetimes that's that's actually that has a cool element to it and Axelrod uses a portion of that here to say that to say that Kendra Saunders has lived millions of lifetimes and apparently as a result of living all millions of lifetimes, Kendra Saunders is in this issue. She's uh, lonely. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't. Uh, her relationships have fallen apart. She's she broke up with Martian Manhunter, the, the relationship she was in with Martian Manhunter during death metal and uh, during that Ju- Scott Snyder's Justice League run. And uh, so she's basically uh, Kendra Saunders is depressed here. Uh, if I do have one criticism here. And I think it's legitimate is, and uh, I'm just going to use examples of, there's all kinds of examples of movies. There's no strong male character here. And, and I think that's a, a huge problem. I don't know why there isn't a strong male character here. You, you lit- there's literally every single male major character in here. All of them are, uh, they're all women. Uh, why not have some, why not have a male character here? I mean, the, the villains are villain, are, 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 are women. Everything, everything is women centric here. Also, every character is LGBTQ, every single one. I don't know why that's the case. This will, that will push people, some people off this title. We know it will. Uh, I'm just, I'm just mentioning it because it, it just will. And it's a, it might be unfortunate, but that's the reality. Uh, th- there, there's an incorporation of Nia, Dream Girl, whose uh, character has, talks to Galaxy, another character in this particular comic. And Galaxy is told by Dream Girl to essentially go and talk to Hawk Girl because Hawk Girl needs help. Kendra Saunders being potentially bisexual. That you could fear you could you could maybe think to yourself, well, she's lived a million lifetimes. Logic would lead you to believe that at least in a million, one of those millions of lives, she was probably LGBTQ. One could logically conclude that. I mean, the odds are probably that that's the case. So that's not necessarily surprising, uh, except for the fact that uh, Kendra Saunders has historically been a, a fiercely, fiercely heterosexual uh, uh, woman. So that that is a change as well. Uh, again, uh, it, but we, we know, I'm just identifying the elephant in the room uh, that it, it's going to upset some certain voices on the internet. Now, having said all that, I don't care about that. I, I actually, uh, I, I don't care about that so much because I actually like where this story is going, the idea of an nth world, that this villain called Valpukula, Valpukula has made a deal with a young girl, with a young girl by the name of Maureen at the beginning of this ta- of this story, and that was 50 years ago. Maureen's grown, Maureen's grown up to be, a, 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 I guess, a 50-year-old woman who now, now 
the, uh, she's been, she was, Velpicook, uh, I'm trying to say the name right, Velpicook, this character, gave, gave Maureen, gave Maureen this, uh, this, uh, this necklace when she was younger and uh, this necklace was made of ant metal. And so this young girl, Maureen has grown up a lifetime grown up with this ant metal infusing in her body, infusing her body with ant metal energies that this, uh, Volpecook is going to use at the beginning, at the end of the story to go, go back to her when, when Maureen's an adult and try to channel that energy to try to create a path to the nth world. Now, what's the nth world? We don't know. Uh, but it's kind of interesting. I, so I'm kind of curious to see where that leads. Unfortunately, where, what I'm not particularly interested in is I do find it a little bit tropey doing the, that the Kendra is depressed. Kendra is, you know, she's, it showed scenes of Kendra being literally curled up by her couch. She's very lonely. She's depressed. And I'm, I'm not, I'm a little bit surprised. She's lived a million lifetimes. What's different about this one? I would, I would think someone in her situation, uh, give her a little bit more gravitas, give her a little bit more heroism, give her a little bit more strength in this. She comes across as weak and pathetic. I understand deconstruction in comics, but this is Kendra Saunders. And this was really just because we, she may not have much of a necessarily a congruent past or one that's necessarily easy to get into all you need to know is that she's lived a million lives so this does not strike me as a woman that's going to be prone to um prone to uh suicide or prone to anything else she's done that in her past she's been there and done that and she's come through it stronger than ever in re in in frankly in recent storylines and so but i understand that uh that uh jad uh, jad c axelrod is trying to go there uh there's even she meets an old college roommate that she hasn't seen since college and doesn't seem to be phased when her friend asks her, uh, basically asks her out on a date. And um, she should be, I think, in my mind, that that seemed out of character for me, the way she reacted to that. It didn't really ring true. This, this, this really did read, and this is, what it, this is what's going to ruffle feathers. This read like an LGBTQ book. This was a pride story through and through. And I say again, no strong male characters. I mean... I mean, you. I mean, that's I think where where Kendra shines is when she kicks ass, and when it's just all female characters. I, I just think it's really missing something here. I like the villain. Uh, what I don't see, I think the the characters. Uh, Galaxy is a redundant character. Her Galaxy has a has a girlfriend. I, I I don't really see how what what they bring to the story. I don't know how Galaxy of all people can help Kendra. It it doesn't really ring true to the character that I know and love. And I have to admit, I'm completely biased because to me, when I think of Hawkgirl, I think of kick-ass Kendra Saunders. I think of Carter Hall. Uh, she's stronger than this. This is a Kendra Saunders. I don't like seeing her weak and pathetic like this. So I have a biased view of Kendra. Now, I have no doubt she's going to come out stronger than ever. But I, I, this, this just, it, it never felt right to me. It never felt right. But I'm really intrigued by the plot. I really like the plot of an ant metal world because I like what Scott Snyder did with all those different metals and stuff at one point in the Justice League. And if Axelrod can do something with the ant world and introduce some new, interesting new concepts and Kendra's part of that, I really look forward to, to what she brings to the table in that regard. But we, we shall see. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I don't care that there's no male character. There's plenty of, of comics out there that don't have any female characters. So 
No, there aren't. I even. I, even <laughs> I, I, I would argue. I would argue against that. But I, I would just. I would just say. Well, I don't. I don't see the point. I, I don't want to be argumentative here, but I, I really think that you have to have a balance, and there's no ba- No, there's no balance here in my mind. Yeah, I don't, again, especially the farther back you go, the less and less female characters you have. And then when the female characters are there, they're just, you know, like I think back to when Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern, right? And the whole women in refrigerators yeah. thing, <laughs> like his girlfriend only existed. Like, yeah, think about that run. Think about that Green Lantern run. I mean, Green Lantern had uh, Carol Ferris in it for a long time, but again, sort of a plot point. And Jade. For being the damsel in distress. Yeah, she didn't come till much later. She didn't come till the 80s. I'm talking about, you know, early on. And, and I guess you had some Black Canary when it was Hard Traveling Heroes. But regardless, um, yeah, so I don't necessarily think it, they have to have a strong male character. But I get your point that she's a little bit unrecognizable here. Because uh, you're right. I mean, well, from what I know of her, you know, she had this relationship with John Jones does that make her heterosexual? I mean, Martians have female, they have gender, right? <laughs> and so yeah, she was, yeah. yeah, I don't know. You, you could, you could make an argument, but my point is that sh- she was initiating that as much as John was, if not more so. So I, I take your point of her being capable and confident and, you know, what have you. And she certainly comes across that way in the battle early on in the pages. It's more, and she talks about this, you know, she, she even, Later on toward the end of the book, she's talking to Batman. She has her Hawk Girl mask on when she's talking to Batman. And it's almost as though Axelrod is saying, Kendra's confident when she's Hawk Girl. She knows who she is when she's Hawk Girl. She's badass and she's kick-ass when she's Hawk Girl. The problem is when she takes the mask off, who is she? Who's Kendra Saunders? She's, she became Hawk Girl at such a young age. She may not know who she is out of the costume she may not have that confidence that might be a little hint that might be purposeful that before she even calls batman on the phone you know she's she's putting on the the cowl if you will the hot girl mask so that's interesting the other thing that i did want to mention you reminded me the one thing i didn't like even though that opening battle with the rest of the i don't even i guess we can't call them the justice league because they're disbanded or whatever but where uh kendra's you know very formidable very capable I didn't like the way they're in the middle of battling these little gas aliens, um, but they're they're like not pay, seemingly not paying attention at all. They're talking about something completely unrelated. I just didn't like the way that played out. It was so it felt so weird to juxtapose like personal conversations and talks of talking about relationships against this fight trying to protect the planet. It didn't. It just felt very strange. It was almost like. There wasn't enough real estate in this first issue to, for Axelrod to do everything she wanted to do. So she had to sort of kill two birds with one stone, show the abilities of Kendra Saunders as Hawkgirl, show everybody fighting, show, you know, first issue with action, um, but still talk about relationship stuff. So that was a little wonky for me. But yeah, I didn't, I, I'm fine if there's not a, a, male strong male character in this it's you know sometimes it's okay for the pendulum to swing back the other way and yeah you're right the, a lot of the in a lot of ways this does read like a pride series and it's going to piss some people off you know what i don't give a fuck because they have enough <laughs> books to read that don't have anything to do with pride 
And the LGBTQ community hasn't been represented in comics. And I understand that now it feels like they're everywhere. They're in every comic. And maybe the pendulum has swung too far to that side. I totally get that. But after being ignored for so long, I can put up with a little bit of that. It'll swing back and it'll find the right balance eventually. Um, but God, I'm just so sick of people complaining. Like if this, if you don't like the fact that there's LGBTQ characters in this book, then don't fucking read it. There's plenty of other books you can read that are badass and have plenty of testosterone. Go read Berserker. You know, <laughs> go read Batman. There's plenty of other books. Go read, um, do a power bomb. You know from Daniel Warren Johnson about badass wrestling. That's an excellent book. Yeah. Plenty of other books out there for you to read. There's no reason to pick this up. And then because it has LGBTQ themes or characters or whatever to shit on it, it's not for you. If you hate that, if you're bigoted and don't like LGBTQ, then just don't read it. I I will say this. I'm glad that you mentioned that galaxy was a character that uh, Jad C. Axelrod had uh, written elsewhere. I had no idea that that was a young, young. What's that? She created galaxy. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So yeah, I might have to go check that out. I, that was, is that a young uh, adult? uh, Yeah. It was one of the young adult graphic novels, galaxy, the last star or something like that. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that, 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 That was a fun moment. Neither of us mentioned it when Kendra does call Batman and she's like, "How? What do you know about galaxies?" Like, "Oh, not much." And then he basically, you know, gives her entire biography. Like, "Oh, that's not much." I hate to think what you know about me. My files are extensive. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think actually, Batman. Batman would probably be a good therapist for Kendra because Kendra seems to have no will to live right now and seems very depressed. She should talk to Batman. Batman can tell her everything she's ever done. Hundred <laughs> percent. This is the reason we need you around. Yeah. So anyway. Didn't mean to get all uh, on my soapbox there, but God, I just get so tired of people complaining about stuff. Like nobody's forcing you to read this. If you don't want to read it, don't read it. So anyway, moving on, Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Redder. There's a number of stories in here. The first one, The Man of Steel, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Kevin McGuire. Letters by Anne Design. Chris Conroy is the editor. Uh, And we should mention, you know, Black, White, and Redder. These are those limited color palette stories. Everything is black, white, or red. The first story is Harley and Ivy trying to break into the uh, Fortress of Solitude to steal a bunch of Kryptonian technology to sell. Love, love, love the Kevin Maguire art. It's the highlight of this uh, issue. It turns out Batman is there along with other members of Justice League, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman. And we get the patented... Kevin Maguire facial expressions that are definitely worth the price of admission. But other than that, this just felt a little weird to me because this clearly is not the present day Harley where she's trying to be a hero. This is totally the villainous Harley trying to pull off heists, hanging out with Pamela Isley. Um, And so I, you know, I, I couldn't help but have that in the back of my mind that like, this is just doesn't, doesn't jive at all with current continuity. So it, it pulled, pulled me out of continuity a little bit, but um, as I'm flipping through the pages here and just checking out the art, like it's so gorgeous that I kind of don't care. I don't really care what the story is. I just liked it for the, for the McGuire art. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. My, my favorite scene is when, uh, you know, Superman catches Harley and she tries to pretend she tries to act like a robot and like another robot in the fortress. That was kind of funny. I was, I laughed out loud when I, when I saw that and I agree with the facial expressions. I, I thought that was by, by far the best story of the entire compilation, uh, for, 
uh, I quite enjoyed it. Kevin Maguire is a master at facial expressions. Yeah, the next one was interesting. So Push Through the Pain, written by Leah Williams. Natasha Bustos is the artist, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, and it, this is something I at least haven't seen before with Harley. It's her. We know she was trained as a gymnast, like Olympic level gymnast. Supposedly, this is what allows her to do things like take on the whole Trinity in Heroes in Crisis <laughs> and somehow win, which is so ridiculous. Uh, but she was definitely pushed very hard by by the coach that they had, uh, the gymnastics coach. And so you can kind of understand, uh, and I liked it. I liked the this glimpse at Harley's past, sort of explaining, you could see why she would do what she did with the Joker and what have you, uh, the formative years being, I mean, this coach was really abusive in a lot, in a lot of ways, torturing, not just Harley, but the rest of these girls. Um, and, you know, with the excuse of this is how champions are made. This is how I was trained. And so also getting into the idea of how so often abuse is cyclical, right? Like somebody who was abused as a child, then abuses their own children because it's just sort of how they, it's all they know, right? Um, they kind of learn it by imitation. So yeah, this coach Mardock was definitely um, an interesting character and it was, it was kind of cool to see, the uh, this origin of Harley in, in a lot of ways, where some of her trauma comes from. So I was pretty impressed. Uh, the art by Bustos is fine. I didn't think it was um, anything special. It never pulled me out of the story. The transitions from panel to pine. Um, I liked that the teenage girls here, including Harley Quinn, look like teenage girls. You know, so often we see there's um, there's inconsistency. Some panels they look like a little girl. Other panels they look completely grown up. So good job by Bustos uh, to keep it very consistent uh, from that perspective. So uh, yeah. anything to add on uh, the uh, yeah, just that just that I I appreciate your comments about the about the fact of what for an early version of Harley learning the ropes, being a gymnast, and and she learned to deal with the, an, an abusive coach or what have you. I I always find that I can't help but to to link continuity to it because. People always, a lot of these early Harley stories always sometimes seem to forget is that Harley is this dest Harley is destined to be manipulated and abused under the current continuity by the Joker. And it seems to me that if she overcame all this abuse, like in all these Harley young adult and all young adult stories and everything else, where Harley's overcoming this and overcoming that, uh, and yet somehow she still managed to be manipulated and abused by the Joker. Uh, but, you think you would have learned the lesson. Exactly. That, that's the only thing I would add. But like you said, if you can just sort of like, sometimes, let's be blunt, sometimes we're a little bit harsh. Us longtime readers, we have to like relax, take a pill. I got to relax and, you know, forget about continuity. Just enjoy a good story. Uh, it does It does make actually a lot of sense. And uh, one can perhaps speculate that, you know, some of the abuse uh, maybe made her from this coaching maybe made her more vulnerable to the manipulations of the Joker, depending on how much you want to get into the psychology of it. So I actually thought it was uh, very well done and it was a pleasant surprise. <clears throat> yeah. And again, the, the art I think was, uh, was really fantastic. So the final story, Get Gaggy, written by Paul Shear and Nick Giovanetti, art by Tom Riley, letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, <laughs> this one was sort of weird. You didn't talk about Harley uh, being manipulated by Gaggy and some of the other joker goons but then she sort of at the end kind of flips the script on them and it turns out that maybe 
she was the one that was uh, was playing them, or maybe it was Catwoman that was playing everybody. Uh, but this this story was okay for me. Uh, it was it was sort of the the weakest one, only because th- the story is probably comparable for me in quality to the first story. But I enjoyed the art in the first story more. So, not to say this one is bad, um, but it was the one that I was least entertained by. Um, it's just sort of okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on anything to add I, on the last I one? actually really like the art on this. Uh, Kevin Maguire's art at the beginning. I love Kevin Maguire, uh, but I have to give Tom Riley here. Th- this just really, really works. I like this version of Harley. It's almost like a country bumpkin Harley. And uh, I, I just, uh, I really liked it. It reminded me of like a hee-haw type of Harley. And I thought it really worked. I, I thought the Selena was also an interesting take on Selena. I like the look with Selena with the red glass, with the black, white, and red of Selena. Which actually made me, I, I love the drawing of Catwoman so much. I actually, um, I would like to see a black, white, and red Catwoman comic. Although that would, pro- would probably be purple, white, and right. black or whatever, but who knows. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it was, it was a pleasant surprise. And uh, yeah, so all in all, like uh, for all, all three of these stories are, is, is actually a pretty good, uh, pretty good collection of uh, Harley stories. And I have to say, I, I definitely enjoy these Harley compilations more than I'm enjoying some of the main stories in, in the Harley Quinn comic, uh, you know, uh, as it currently stands, particularly the, the whole multiverse. I prefer Harley doing this with black, white, and redder as opposed to screwing up the multiverse as she's doing in that other comic. <laughs> the vorpal fish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Up next, we have Tales of the Teen Titans starring Starfire number one, written by Shannon and Dean Hale. Javier Rodriguez is the artist. Hassan Atman Elhaw does the letters. Fantastic covers on these, uh, Nicholas Scott, Stanley, uh, or Art Jern, I guess, Javier Rodriguez, Fatima Wajid. Um, so he, here's what's interesting. And, and we, we talked about this when we talked about the first issue of the uh, other Teen Titans book that's sort of them younger when they first get together, but it's set in modern times where they have social media and cell phones and all that sort of stuff. Um and so this, in a way, it kind of goes the other way. Like with the art style that's being used here uh, by Javier Rodriguez, it sort of looks 80s, but yet this is the Titans now. This is the Titans together again, it says on the first page. So, you know, they mention, it's very meta, they mention being kind of the replacement for the Justice League. And, you know, this one specifically focuses on uh, on Starfire, on Corey. But really what this book is doing, you know, the regular Titans book um, from Tom Taylor's, I, I guess, is, you know, as much as Tom Taylor does really give us a lot of emotional and character moments, it really feels like that's supposed to be more of the action type book. And then we have the other Titans book that's coming out, uh, the one I think it's being written by Mark Wade, where it's sort of the formative um, years of Titans. But then in this Tales, it's sort of trying to bridge the gap between the two. It feels like because we're getting some action, but like I said, the art looks like a throwback to the eighties, but it's really focusing on relationships. And so when you talk about this Starfire, Tales of the Titans Starfire issue, it's focused on Starfire, but it's also focused on Starfire as she relates to the other members of the team. What's her relationship like with Beast Boy? What's her relationship with Donna Troy? What's her relationship like with Nightwing, with Cyborg, that sort of thing. And so I, I really enjoyed it because especially I think more than any other character uh, of the Teen Titans, more than any other team member, Starfire is the one who's 
sort of been the most inconsistent when you talk about different versions of her over the years. Like I, I keep thinking back to when they brought her, uh, kind of a new version when they brought her in to the new 52. And she was a member of the Red Hood and the Outlaws, right? And they, they um, that was written by Scott Lobdell, probably not his finest hour to write Corey there as kind of this scantily clad alien bimbo, right? Like she was very naive and she just didn't come across as really, um, you know, intelligent. She was kind of this airhead who didn't know any better. It was very powerful, but yeah, she was sort of used as a comic relief and it, I don't know, it didn't really pay much respect to the legacy of the character. And it, it feels like the Hales here are trying to get back to that a little bit and sort of explaining why Corey is the way she is, why she's a little impetuous, why she is so emotional. And it made, it made total sense when um, it was kind of explained. And I thought it worked really, really well. Shows how much Corey cares, you know, not just about the people of earth, her adopted planet, but still about the other Tamarians around the galaxy. And yeah, I thought it was done really, really well. Um, the Javier Rodriguez line work I thought was fine. It was, like I said, a little bit of a throwback in terms of artwork. Really, that's mostly the colors. It's a little bit more of a muted palette, almost not so much back to like sepia tones, but headed in that direction, right? Certainly much more that way than, you know, bright primary colors. So that, that lends, lends this feel of making it feel a little old fashioned, which, you know, perfectly fine. Um, but it is an interesting choice because it, it took me a little while. I was like, wait, it's muted colors, but that's not signifying this as some sort of flashback. This is happening in current time. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed seeing the interactions. I mean, certainly when you talk about paying homage to the classic Wolfman Perez run of the Titans, that was all about relationships, right? A lot of people compared it to X-Men back in the day because it was so focused on almost a soap opera type feel with different relationships and people getting married and divorced and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, overall, I thought this was pretty solid. What'd you think, Rocky? You know, I had to read this twice because when I first read this, my first read through full disclosure, it upset me. It upset me. I, I didn't like the fact that Starfire was scripted as to be a character that would suddenly, in my view, it felt out of the blue that suddenly she doesn't like being called princess. It just felt, it just felt like, she was suddenly she didn't like being called, you know, cyborg calls her emotional. And then she didn't, doesn't even like being called, uh, you know, alien princess. And it felt like, where's this coming from? Um, I, it got better on the second read and I, and it is explained. You're absolutely right. It is explained. And the way that I had to justify with my own head canon, because there wasn't enough story in it to make it really work palatable for, for me. Uh, but I can understand what uh, writers uh, uh, Sh uh, Shannon and uh, Dean Hale were going for. And um, I don't think Javier Rodriguez's art, it didn't work for me. Uh, at, part, at times, this story felt like I was reading a, 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 I could have been watching a DC superhero girls cartoon. That was the, the, basically the message. Don't call me a princess. I'm not a princess. No, 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 no. Princess means hero. At the end, she had to finally figure that out, which I know she already knows that. But it, in parts of this narrative, Shannon and Dean Hale, writers, they ground 
her true angst, what's truly upsetting to Starfire is that she associates, she's been through so much and she's lost her entire homeworld of Tamaran. She was a princess. She was revered by the people. Her sister became queen of Tamaran. It was ultimately destroyed. And she has people who love her, who, who think of her and only know her as princess. The entire planet Earth thinks of Coriander as a princess. Is, they know her as Starfire, but they also know her as that alien princess. It's something when they think of her, they think of a hero. She's been on the Titans. She's helped out the Justice League. She's been at, in every crisis. When people think of Starfire, they think of, number one, absolutely gorgeous, if you're a man, probably for some women too. And number two, she is a princess in every, and, and it's meant in the nicest way. The angst upon which it's repeated again and again that Starfire resents being called princess. She even meets uh, a couple of other alien sisters that reminds of her old relationship, her early relationship with Commander, uh, Commandy, her, her, her sister who becomes Blackfire. Uh, uh, that, that juxtaposition there, it, it worked, but it kind of didn't necessarily work for me uh, because the sister clearly were a very different dynamic in the relationship than Starfire ever was with uh, Blackfire. And so that didn't quite work for me. Uh, and But I, I will say that I do like that at, at the end, Starfire does come to terms with the fact that uh, that it's part of her nature and she, she accepts it, as she bloody well should. I, I actually did thought it was a little out of character that she would have even had that angst to begin with. Uh, but having said that, I will say that the fact that Black uh, that Starfire had this sort of uh, journey, I mean, I think for new readers, this will get new readers up to speed. Um, you know, in terms of maybe who this new character is, if you don't know a lot about Starfire, because she's got a very complicated history as well, but she's got a psychologically complicated history, and she's she's done a lot of uh, she's she's come a long way in discovering uh, her own. Emotions, and it has to be remembered that when she was tortured by the Scions, when she uh, early on in the early more of Wolfman George Perez run, part of those experiments, as a result of those experiments, it made it more difficult for Starfire to control all of her emotions. Her her sister Blackfire was always more controlled in her emotions. Starfire was more openly expressing them, and there, that was the good and the bad. Blackfire repressed her emotions, and then when she exploded, things got bad. Starfire also was too often seen as uh, as always releasing her emotions and, and speaking and wearing her heart on her sleeve, almost empathic. And she could she could come across as maybe a little bit too empathic, too touchy feely, too sensitive, and so that that rings true. So it was on a second read, as it was clear to me that Shannon and Dean had done their homework here. Although I do think they played the they played the princess card a little bit too hard. I think they hammered the point a little bit too hard and maybe overdid it. The fact is, is that I think for this is a tale of the Titans. It's for a new age, for a new generation of readers. And I think in that respect, it this uh, worked uh, particularly well. The art, I think, did not work particularly well. I don't think it, 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 it didn't really suit the narrative for me particularly well. I would have preferred a very different style of art, one that was a little more traditional DC. I, I love the cover art. The cover art is fantastic. Uh, the cover art by Nicola Scott is fantastic. There is a cover B, and I don't know who draws it, but it almost looks like that negative space variant cover B looks absolutely fantastic. All the covers here, forgive me, I don't know the name of the artists, but... If you guys are in the comic book shop and you're checking out Tales of the Teen Tales of the Titans, uh, you'll be 
Check out Starfire. She looks sexy as hell in all the covers. She looks the least sexy, unfortunately, within the pages of the comic itself. Uh, and that's just the way it is. But, uh, yeah, beyond that, uh, that's really all I got to say about that. I have, uh, for those listening, uh, for those listening on the podcast, this is where I have to buy some time because Jace has temporarily left the building. Elvis has left the building, ladies and gentlemen. So I will, uh, I'll just, uh, well, what can we talk about here? I can tell you that the next comic book that we're going to be reviewing, we are done Starfire. Uh, the next comic book that we will be reviewing is, bear with me, we are going to be reviewing the Vigil. Uh, uh, the Vigil, uh, that this is the Vigil issue three. And uh, let me see here. Uh, this is uh, written by Ram V uh, with art by Lalit Kumar Sharma. And uh, this, uh, this issue picks up, uh, well, surprisingly, it picks up after issue two. Does that surprise anybody? Of course not. Uh, this is what happens when I try to do more than two things at once. Uh, the art, the cover art here is fantastic. Cover A, cover B is particularly good. Uh, this issue focuses on, uh, we get to know the team more uh, through, through the character of uh, Seiya, also known as, I think, Mask. Uh, Seiya is a character who, as a team member of, of Vigil, she has a mask, or he has a mask. I'm not sure if it's a male or a female. And he, she uses the mask, and Seiya is on the cover of the comic, uses the mask, and when you place the mask on anybody, it duplicates the face of that character, and Seiya can assume the identity of that person. And what Seiya does in this comic book is that she's under orders by, uh, for, from Dr. Sankara, uh, Sankara to essentially infiltrate the life of Nia, uh, and Nia Saha, who is a plant who's been planted in Vigil by the, um, by another person by the name of uh, uh, planted by uh, Mister Lightless has planted uh, Nia in the character to uh, in, in the Vigil to try to get information on the team and to make recommendations as to whether or not the Vigil should stay together. Now to be clear here the vigil is a team that's been put together and it's funded by mr lightless and the leader of this team is, is this dr sankaran and and what's really odd here is that the funding for this for the team of the vigil comes from this mr lightless and he seems while he seems to finance the vigil he has he's suspicious about the activities of dr sankara and he's unclear as to dr sankara's motives at the end of last issue it was revealed that dr sankara seems to have a very he seems to disappear at different times and almost goes into an other dimensional place. And so we're not really sure what Dr. Sankara is doing. In the meantime, we know that Nia has done a, a psychological has done her own psychological profiling of the vigil. And Nia herself has basically concluded that the vigil is a team that is dysfunctional, dangerous, and reckless. And she recommends that either they get more increased oversight of the activities of the vigil because of the conclusion she makes as to all its members, or alternatively, that it be basically, that it be shut down, that the vigil be shut down. And that is, uh, it's a hell of a scathing thing to, to, to say. Now, what's interesting is Seiya, or the mask, is, is, is to infiltrate and find out more inf information about Seiya herself, or about, about Nia herself. So Nia is investigating the entire team of vigil, 
but Saya is investigating Nia. So we got we got two investigations going on here, and and the we discover the conclusions of both the investigations in this single issue, and we get psychological profiles essentially of every member of the team, which is very helpful. It reminded me of the fourth issue of the Unstoppable June Patrol, where we had that Jerry alien psychologist who has different uh, entities from different dimensions help her with her psychology and psychologically breaking down each member of the Unstoppable Doom Patrol. We were, Jason and I reviewed that last week. While in this particular issue of Vigil, uh, Vigil Number 3, we've got psychological profiles really essentially uh, of each member of the team. We discover that Major Khan who is Arclight, he's got issues of temperament and violence. And even though he's, a, he's, the, he's the de facto leader of the vigil, uh, he is in fact very reckless and he's kind of a wild card. We know that um, uh, Dr. Sankara, he has unclear motives and machinations, so we don't really know what, what he, exactly what his true motives are for even creating vigil in the first place per se. Uh, we know that uh, Dodge, uh, Dodge is a character that can move very quickly, but that she is a uh, she's more balanced and restrained, and she's probably the most compassionate member of the on the team, according to Nia, and. And uh, uh, Dodge's compassion is really manifest uh, where they were in the comic book in this issue where they actually invade. They end up uh, checking out. Uh, they go on an adventure in Cambodia where uh, back in World War Two, uh, Russian scientists created, uh, did sleep experiments on these uh, monk, psychic monks that were in Cambodia. And what it did was that the dreams of these psychic monks became reality. And so the vigil team basically infiltrated this area of uh, Cambodia and infiltrated these, these monks and essentially uh, had the role of, uh, had the goal of essentially, unfortunately, killing them. And the one person that killed him was the character of Castle, the, the vigil team member Castle. He's very logical. He's indifferent. He's got no emotions. And so uh, he's he's a very, very heartless, uh, deadly ind individual who's got no problem actually killing one of the monks at the end and in a very heartless way. He did it compassionately, but he did it very nonchalantly with what appears to be no emotion, no, no, in, uh, all indifference, no tears at all. And what could have been, what should have been uh, an emotional moment for anyone, uh, was very emotionless for him. And that's, um, He's almost like he's like Damien on steroids. This uh, this Castle character, and when he when Damien, oh, pardon me, when Castle, who reminds me of Damien, but he's like Damien on steroids. The old Damien Wayne Castle is this one. He's logical, no emotions, and when he takes out that monk, it really you really got a strong sense that this Castle character. Why is he on the team? Well, when uh, Nia asks asks uh, Dr. Sankara, why is Castle even on the team? Because he's kind of a really indifferent, emotionless, logical bastard. Uh, the Castle, uh, Dr. Sankara says, he's on the team because I don't want him on any other team. So I'd rather have him on our team rather than have him on the opposite team. And so, uh, good revelations about that. We, um, uh, again, this entire issue really was a complete focus and on, on vigil the vigil team itself, and what Saya discovers about Nia is that Nia herself is uh, is someone who is um, who visits her parents, uh, who ba basically has a father who's in 
in the hospital uh, and she doesn't talk much. She doesn't have much of a life outside of work. And um, she's, uh, it's kind of a sad character, Nia. And that leads Saya to conclude to Dr. Sankara that Nia is not a threat to Vigil. Uh, so it's interesting. We got two psychological, we got two psychological assessments going on. Nia evaluating the team of the Vigil and the, and Dr. Sankara having Saya evaluate Nia. And, and again, it comes to a head and the benefit to us readers is that we get the benefit of the results of this. And we see that this, this team of the vigil, it's hard not to agree with Nia at the end of this, that, that to quote, uh, to quote Nia, that vigil is a team that is dysfunctional, dangerous, and reckless. (laughs) And she recommends that either they have more oversight or that they be disbanded. So I thought this was an excellent uh, issue by Ram V. He took a page from Dennis Culver with what Dennis Culver did in Unstoppable Doom Patrol number four last week, and I thought it worked rather well. And I really thought the that the art by uh, by Lalit Kumar Sharma worked really uh, really good as well, and uh, I enjoyed it. So good to have you back, Jace. So uh, tell yeah. me what you think of the vigil. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Real quick before I give you my thoughts on the vigil, uh, I heard you talking about the. The covers for Tales of Teen Titans. Yeah, every one of them is fantastic. The main cover by Nicholas Scott, I think, is the one I ordered. But the B cover is by Art Germ. That's, I think, probably the one that a lot of people are going to like. It doesn't have the big trade dress. But there's also a foil version of it, which I imagine those colors are just going to pop in foil. The negative space one is a ratio by Javier Rodriguez, which is also fantastic. I'm trying to get away from buying any ratio covers, though, um, because I just – it's, it's, you know, it's, it's gone too far. It's gone too far. And if I support them, then I'm, I'm, you know, saying I want it to continue. Uh, then there's a one in 50, almost like a seventies vibe where she's got a big giant Afro. Uh, but the other thing is there's a, uh, for those that are going to be at Comic-Con, there's an Alex Ross SDCC exclusive, which is basically Alex Ross redoing the cover, uh, of the, of issue one of the new Teen Titans from Wolfman and Perez, uh, which oh. is just, just gorgeous. Uh, I think it's 20, I want to say 25 bucks, uh, 40 if you want it signed. Um, wow. But yeah, that one's well. So I'm not sure if I'll pick one of those up or not at, uh, at San Diego. I know yeah, I would if I was you. Yeah, I probably will. Uh, I mean, definitely getting the art germ cover. That's that's fantastic because I already ordered the Nicholas Scott one. Yeah, when it comes to the vigil. So I'm very, very excited to say I'm sitting down with Ram V at San Diego Comic-Con to talk to him about the vigil because I raved about the first issue. It was my book of the week. Um, second issue was also very strong, maybe not quite as good as the first issue. We're returning to the height, highest of heights here with issue number three. Rocky's right in just a fantastic narrative. Dennis Culver did it recently. He mentioned that as well, where we're getting this idea of, okay, can't Dr. Sankara wants to know, can he trust Nia? Can he trust Nia? So Saya goes there, steals her face, goes around her friends, her family, everybody she's close to, and, and almost, you know, plants these little clues to see if anybody's going to mention that she's talked to him about what she does, her work, can the, because Sankara wants to know, is she out there telling people about the vigil? She's not. She's not. Uh, it's clear in Saya's interactions when he is disguised as Nia that she hasn't told anybody, not her mother, not her friends, not her, her girlfriends, nobody, not her, her father who's suffering from uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. She's told no one about any uh, aspects of the vigil. So from that aspect, she can be trusted. 
So they're more concerned about that rather than her actual sort of professional psychological opinion of the team, because I think Sankara knows all that. Sankara knows that it's a dysfunctional team. Sankara knows that the it's not even re- it's a team only in name, right? They're not actually working together. Like they work together well in the field in terms of accomplishing the mission, but there's not really a connection there. And if the chips were down, would they have each other's back? Probably not. They're all going to be out for themselves. It's more a function of exactly how uh, Nia describes why Castle's on the team in Sankara's own words. He's on this team so that he won't be on anyone else's team. And I sort of feel like that applies to everybody that's on the vigil, probably (laughs) including Sankara himself. He's got this team of dysfunctional people that all have trauma and baggage because if he can't keep his eyes on them, they're going to be out there doing perhaps something worse for someone else. But there's also skeletons and baggage in in Dr. Sankara's closet as well. We just haven't gotten many, if any, hints to that. Like, how does he get his information? Who's he working for? Who's this Mr. Lightless or Dr. Lightless or whoever? Um, We don't know yet. Can he be trusted? Because this is not a team of heroes, although they're a a team, maybe you could call them an action team or a, a strike force team or something like that. You know, their job is to go out there and and accomplish the mission, whatever that might be. But they're not in it to, you know, to rescue people or or be heroes the way you think of the Justice League as heroes or, you know, the Titans as heroes or, uh, you know, any of the other groups in the in the DCU. So it's it's a much different dynamic, but it feels real. It feels uh, lived in these characters and the way they relate to each other. Fascinating. Um, the art is gorgeous from Sharma as, uh, as Rocky mentioned. And yeah, this castle character maybe has me the most intrigued of all of them because he literally, he, he's the textbook de- definition of a psychopath. So my, my degree is in psychology, even though I never <laughs> got a job in psychology, whatever. I know there are many people out there who don't use their degrees at all. I'm, I'm the same way, but literally the definition of a psychopath, you know, one of the requirements to be diagnosed, um, as a psychopath is that you have no empathy, you, you feel no emotions and that is castle. Right. Um, now the saving grace for him, when he, he kills this monk who's been alive for over a hundred years being kept alive through, you know, medical assisted, um, devices, you know, fed by tubes and what have you. And he, he said, he says to castle, he's like, I can feel my body. I can feel my teeth rotting. I can feel my body, you know, rotting away inside me. He's, his body's not even functioning. He's only being kept alive by these machines. This guy wants to die. So they make it out to be a little bit of a mercy killing. But here's the thing. It comes across that even if this was like a 20-something-year-old psychic monk that was manifesting this floating city, Castle would have done the exact same thing, no hesitation. So they make it a little better in terms of, hey, it's not so bad He's because it's a mercy killing. This guy wanted to die. He was miserable. His life had gone on way too long. But make no mistake, Castle is a psychopath. He, and I, I can't – like a true psychopath, somebody who truly does not have empathy, truly doesn't have emotional connections to things, like that is that is terrifying. Like I remember in my abnormal psych class like seeing – jailhouse interviews and psychiatric interviews with some of these people. And man, it is, 
it is scary. Like there's just this look in their eyes. Like it's really scary. Cause people, I mean, the whole expression, eyes are the windows to the soul. Like most people, like you look in their eyes and you, you that's where you can convey emotion. Like evolution has just trained us, right? Subconsciously to recognize that. Like you look at somebody, often it's the eyes, but really it's the whole face, micro expressions and what have you. And you can tell they're happy, they're sad, they're annoyed, they're uh, sorrowful, they're regretful, they're scared. You know, you can tell. When you look at somebody that's a psychopath, it's just there. There's something about them that's unrecognizable, right? And it's it's that it's that they're not showing emotion. Now, the really scary ones have learned how to mimic emotion or give people what they want to see. Um, and it's interesting because you'll talk to them and they seem perfectly normal, but then when that mask is removed, it's even more terrifying because you're like, well, wait a second, that's not the person that I knew, right? Those are the ones that the neighbors say he was such a nice, quiet man. Uh, he kept to himself. <laughs> He always said hi. He was always smiling, but it was all just fake. So anyway, enough with the uh, the psych lesson for today. Uh, Vigil is amazing. It's so, so good. Uh, it's my favorite DC book right now, like without question. It's so fantastic. And it's one another one of those that, man, I think it's six issues. Uh, there's no way I'm going to get enough of this in six issues. There's no <laughs> way. So again, very, very much looking forward to talking to Ram V about it. Uh, it's a it's a DC facilitated interview. All my interviews at DC there, and, and this is actually true of most of the interviews at San Diego. There's so many people that want to talk to these creators, and a lot of them aren't as um, you know maybe as fortunate as I am, so they don't have personal relationships with some of these creators. So they don't. This is the only chance they have to talk to them. So I kind of go back and forth on whether I should be taking up a slot or not. Um, but I say all that to say. I'm going to talk to Ram V at San Diego. He's promised to come on the show. We've just never made it happen. And we'll probably have him on to talk at greater length, maybe when uh, the vigil is all said and done, all the issues have come out. So, uh, all right, moving on. We have Night Terror's punchline number well, one. Uh, I just, before we do that, I want to, uh, we should mention that the uh, Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker. We would have reviewed next. Uh, apologize to those listening. Uh, it unfortunately the preview copy is not coming up, so neither Jace and I could read it. So uh, maybe uh, maybe in the in the in the days that follow, if I uh, I'll put up a review, uh, or Jace and I both will. But uh, we were unable to review Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker uh, book three. But uh, but so apologies. But we'll we'll try maybe we'll try to sneak it in next week or whatever. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I was going to mention that at the end, but yeah, Rocky's right. I should mention it now before we move into all the Night Terrors books. Yeah, just, I don't know, the file they uploaded to the press preview site must have been corrupted because it's, uh, I, I tried for over a week to open it and it never, I could never get it to open. So I uh, tried two different iPads, tried on my desktop computer, just wouldn't open. So yeah. anyway, like I said, uh, Night Terrors Punchline number one, written by Danny Lore. Lucas Myers is the artist, Alex Guermas on color, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, as much as I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Punchline as a character, I think this book was at least tied for the best Night Terrors book this week. And part of what is interesting about it uh, is it takes place – Punchline's awake. Punchline's awake, and it, it's not exactly explained. It's not spoon-fed to us, but it seems as though – Punchline and her Royal Flesh Gang, due to a lot of the different um, drugs and treatments and what have you that they've taken to protect themselves from the chemicals that they use to kind of 
rule their uh, area of Gotham, that's given them some sort of immunity to the the magic of insomnia and, and p- preventing them from being asleep. We think, we think it's yeah. not a hundred percent. Exactly. We're not a hundred percent. It could be a dream. It but. could be a dream. So early on, it seems like it's not. Yeah. But exactly. then it yeah. goes on and we see Batgirl killed and then we see Batgirl's there, but it's not really Batgirl. It doesn't seem necessarily to be Batgirl. Then it's a cybernetic Batgirl. And so you start wondering, is this, is she really awake? Is she dreaming? If she is dreaming, she's in a dream where everyone else in Gotham is asleep. So it's almost like a dream within a dream. We're just not really sure, but er- certainly early on, uh, and uh, kudos to Danny Laurie, the writer for this, it seems like she's awake and it it gives her like another interesting angle to the, to the character. The fact that she's awake when so many seemingly more powerful heroes and villains than her are not. Um, and uh, I think Lore also does a good job of sort of capturing the pettiness. And that's one of the things that I actually don't like about Punchline is how petty she is. But that's who she is as a character. That's how she was created to begin with. Um, you know, you can just look to her murdering her own college roommate as a perfect example, you know, right from the start. Um, but Lore captures that really, really well, especially when Punchline, having thought she has killed Batgirl, steals Batgirl's motorcycle, goes to the clock, uh, Gotham clock tower and sort of claims Oracle's, you know, clock tower for herself, walking through all the various uh, paraphernalia and pictures and what have you and sort of thinking to herself, you know, you know, how lame this is, all, you know, all these bat trophies and what have you. So probably one of the more enjoyable Punchline stories that I've read. Uh, and I'm curious to see how it all plays out. I thought the art was really strong as well. Um, so yeah, overall, a really, really strong um, showing from uh, from Danny Lore and uh, and the art team. You know, Alex Gormis on the colors. Colors are very punchline esque, if you will. You know, there's a lot of blues and purples, so it's that certainly suits the book. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I wasn't like you say night terrors, and then you say um, you know, punchline, that was already strike one, strike two, but between the, the lower writing, the Gormus colors and the Lucas Meyer, uh, line work. Yeah. I thought this was pretty solid. One of the better night terrors books this week. What'd you think Rocky? Well, it, it could have been so much better. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be very critical here, but I, I mean, this is an underhanded compliment to Danny Lore because I, I, as I, as I said, Danny, uh, Lore was handed a bunch of lemons, just a terrible premise, uh, night terrors and, uh, not given much to work with. They only got two issues. How do you make a story out of that? That's even worth reading, quite frankly. Uh, most have failed. Uh, Danny Lore, at least this was somewhat amusing and, and somewhat, I, I think, Somewhat interesting as a, as a story. However, Punchline and the Royal Flush Gang break into an unknown place. It's not, we don't know what they broke into. We, they, it looks like they broke into a hospital at the beginning. It's never revealed. And, but they're there apparently to steal some videotape evidence. For what purpose? We're never told. Suddenly, Batgirl pops out, attacks Punchline, and is killed. But we know it's not really Batgirl. It can't be Batgirl because it's later revealed not to be Batgirl. So then where's everybody else? Well, it's revealed that Punchline apparently, Punchline has, says that because of, her, of all her, the experiments that she did with gas and chemicals, that she's immune to the nightmare cloud. Now, they never even, he doesn't even reference the nightmare cloud. So people reading this, just coming in off night terrors, reading this tie-in, will be completely lost. 
they will be completely lost. They will have no idea, no idea at all why everyone's sleeping and because there's no reference to a nightmare cloud. Um, so now, fortunately, in other words, this is not particular. I don't find this to be particularly accessible to, to new readers, which is, I think, defeats the entire purpose of what this tie-in was supposed to be. Uh, secondly, of course, just like every other night terror tie-in, there is no reference to a nightmare, st a nightmare stone. Uh, insomnia never shows up. It never shows up. Uh, bear in mind that if this is a dream, if this is not a dream, then where are the sleepless nights? In the waking world, it's the sleepless nights that attack people that are still awake. In the dreaming world, it's insomnia that is looking for the nightmare stone and torments the heroes in their dreams. So this is punchline. If she's not in a dream and this is the waking world, where are the sleepless nights? My guess is one of the sleepless nights maybe possessed Batgirl, but then why would Batgirl be killed or maybe imitated Batgirl? Uh, if this is the waking world, if this is a dream, then what exactly is Punchline's nightmare? What's her worst fears? I mean, Punchline is happy. She's virtually, she's happy throughout this entire story. Punchline is happy because she gets, even Joker's gas never couldn't overcome the, the nightmare, the nightmare cloud. The Joker was subjected to the nightmare cloud, but Punchline wasn't. Also, how could Punchline's own henchmen become immune to anything uh, because of their exposure to her gas, did she actually expose them to her gas? Did she experiment on her own henchmen? She's never done that. Uh, or maybe she has. In, in, in other words, I mean, I, I'm asking all these questions and, and, and I guess you could say maybe they're not important. But, you know, I got to admit that for, I guess I'm a longtime reader, they, they sort of took me out of the story a little bit here. But having said that, this is just punchline. She's very happy. She, she, the whole point here was apparently to, to get some videotape from this and to 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 destroy the security of the watchtower so punchline could break into the watchtower and to basically upload all of batman's files that she thinks is in the watchtower for some reason she for some reason she thinks that all of batman's files are going to be in the watchtower and that she's going to be able to use i guess her hacking skills uh in order to do that and she gets to the to the watchtower and she's again attacked this time by a robotic looking batgirl and again why batgirl of all the things that are in Punchline's nightmare, whether this is a waking night, a waking, whether she's awake or, or if she's dreaming, if she's dreaming, is her nightmare? Since when does Punchline have, her, have a big adversarial relationship with Batgirl? She has one with Catwoman, or at least she used to. I mean, she had one arguably with, I mean, uh, I guess she had one with Black Mask. Why? Like I just, this is a very, very curious choice and it, it, to me, it didn't ring true to the character, and I, I never, I learned nothing about what's the nightmare for Punchline, and it is a huge stumbling block here. Not, not a stumbling block; it's the wrong word. I, I was, for me, and this is where I probably differ from you. I was annoyed that I didn't know if this, uh, and I've been annoyed with some of these other tie-ins as well. It's annoying to me if I don't know this is whether they're asleep or awake, because if they're awake, then they should be fighting the sleepless nights, which is kind of cool. Right? That's cool. They're fighting sleepless nights. It's a cool name. It's a cool concept. We've never seen... Have we seen a sleepless night yet? It's kind of a cool concept. All these times, we haven't seen them. And when they're dreaming, they're fighting insomnia. Insomnia doesn't even show up here that, uh, we're, uh, that I'm aware of. So I'm frustrated. Is it... 
a lot of cool concepts by Danny Lore. The art was fantastic by Lucas Myers, uh, Alex uh, Gamerez, a uh, colorist, fantastic. But I got to say, overall, I'm I'm asking more questions than not to enough that it's sort of, I, I it, this could have been better had the had this had the narrative been tighter, but yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I, yeah, it could have been better. Um, when I'm saying this may be the best punchline story I've read, yeah. that's an extremely <laughs> that's an extremely low bar for me. Like I haven't enjoyed most <laughs> punchline stuff that I've read. So uh, it was better than this next one, unfortunately. Um, Night Terrors, Nightwing, Becky Cloonan, and Michael W. Connor are the writers. Danielle DiNaculo is the artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Clearly, this one is a, a nightmare for Nightwing. Um, interestingly enough, apparently he's killed Batman. That's apparently something that Dick is afraid of, that he'll someday kill Batman. And then, then his other is that somehow Babs has been turned into some sort of cyborg. I don't know what. Cyborg monster? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Not sure what the heck is going on there. So uh, the artwork I also thought was a step backwards. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy the artwork. And maybe that's part of the reason. I, I thought overall last week the artwork was pretty strong. This week the artwork not so. Uh, just like the first week. And I guess for me these stories are really suffering for, for lack of artwork. Um, really don't have any idea what the heck's going on, why – Apparently animals are in charge in Gotham, whether it's chickens or bulls or goats or uh, rats or pigs or whoever. Um, just absolutely no idea what's going on. Kind of a wonky narrative. Uh, Dick is not really recognizable in terms of artwork or, or scripting. Uh, it just honestly felt a bit of a mess. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't really have much else to say. I. I wish I had something more positive to say about this, but this may be the weakest issue so far um, of any of the Night Terrors books. Uh, what I can say, actually, there is there is a positive that I can say. When it comes to the covers, there's some really interesting covers uh, for this particular book, um, which you know DC has been doing a lot of covers lately, and uh, you know Rocky and I, we I think we both have sort of mixed feelings about that. But, uh, but one of the covers in particular for this one was really, really strong. Um, it's the cover B by uh, Francesco Mattina, which is uh, kind of looking over uh, Nightwing's shoulder, like we're behind him and we're looking over his shoulder. And yeah, he looks like he's half bird, half man, um, and really great blue coloring on it. So um, that was really fantastic. But other than that, yeah, I can't really give too many positive things about this Nightwing issue for, uh, unfortunately. So what do you think of it? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, <clears throat> you know, for those listening, you know, Jason, and I, we read a lot of DC comic books and we really do try our best. There, there's absolutely no question that we want to put a positive spin on everything we read. We, we really do try hard. And some, sometimes we have to try harder than, than other times. <laughs> and and I I want to understand what's going on in this Nightwing comic. I really, really do. And it but it, it literally right on the very first page, it's Nightwing waking up and he's strapped down and it, it's it's very obvious he's dreaming. And he says he's dreaming. And 
it's just moving him from one scene to another. He's he, at first it looks like he's uh, surrounded by the the uh, 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 henchmen of of Mister Pig. I'm guessing, and then it shows him his his baton and his he's. He, He's, he's in Arkham Asylum and it's, his baton is filled with blood. And then he talks to Two-Face and he talks to Zaz and uh, then he, and Mad Hatter. And then apparently uh, the, the Scarecrow is under his bed in his cell. And then at the end it's revealed that when he thinks he's attacked Scarecrow in his cell, he's actually killed Batman. And okay, like what – it just – I don't know what what is it really saying about about Dick Grayson. What are his fears? I mean, there. I mean, it, again, we all can kind of. I don't even know what Dick Grayson's fears are, but uh, quite frankly, that is a high concept idea. That if if any writer should be writing what Dick Grayson's fears are, it should be Tom Taylor, since he's writing that. That's a very actually interesting question. Now we could all maybe guess it, but let's see what the actual writer of the. Uh, it just seems like something that should be uh, more thought should be put into. It's it's disturbing to me that that we some of these co- stories are as one dimensional as they are. But this one is I I just I have no idea. This is just baffling to me. What and remember, guys, that insomnia is supposed to be in these dreams, but he's not. Insomnia is supposed to be in these dreams, looking for the nightmare stone. You know, think of how much better these tie-ins would be if Insomnia showed up in each one of these tie-ins and said, where is the Nightmare Stone? He does it in the pages of Night Terror's Superman number one, which we're going to be reviewing. Finally, Insomnia says, he confronts one of the heroes in their dreams and said, where's the Nightmare Stone? Why hasn't Insomnia showed up in all these other tie-ins and said where's the nightmare so that's the purpose that's the whole point of this but we're not getting that and it's like all these writers missed a memo or more specifically very 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 poor editorial management uh and again i sorry to go off on a rant but i had to throw that in (laughs) no fair enough it's just i mean we want these to be good and they're just as much as we weren't excited about the event and the event's been overall underwhelming so far we're trying to find the positives but this, this is just not it. I just, it's not it. Uh, all right. Up next, Night Terror's Wonder Woman. The main story written by Josie Campbell. Juan Ferreira is the artist. Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, does it have the color? No. Oh, I guess Juan Ferreira is doing his own colors, which is typical of, of him. So the art, gorgeous. I'm a big Juan Ferreira fan. Really loved it. Uh, Wonder Woman, again, as all these Night Terror's books were not, Usually surprised by what the hero's nightmare is. And the nightmare for Wonder Woman is she's afraid that she's a monster. You know, she's a demigod. She's not truly a god. She's not truly a uh, a human. Does she belong to either? Does she belong to neither? And so many of the other demigods are monsters, you know, whether it's a minotaur, whether it's these other uh, offspring of Zeus that are, you know, listed, they kind of, mention them to Diana and, you know, she sees how, how terrible they are, whether it's the Orion. Now when you hear Orion DC comics, you think of, you know, dark side son that was raised by high father. I know we're talking about the, you know, from the, the mythology Orion who was a killer and a rapist. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, Tinius son of Zeus, who uh, was a creature who grew so fast 
he outgrew his mother's womb and kind of burst out of her like the little alien and aliens. So, you know, th this is the fear that Diana has, that she's a monster like these other, you know, half gods, these demigods that are Zeus's offspring. So uh, Josie Campbell does a good job. Like I, I talk a lot about how I'm not a big fan of mixing in, you know, traditional Greek mythology with my Wonder Woman comics because I've read enough Greek mythology, took those classes in college, hated it. It's not interesting to me. Like I understand that so many of our modern myths come from that, but that's fine. Just let me read the modern version. Let me read about superheroes, not about gods. If I want to read gods, I'll go back and read those myths and fables. Um, but Josie does a good job of, of giving us just enough to make it interesting and not going over the top. And like I said, big fan of Juan Ferreira. So the art and the colors are really, really fantastic here. Um, so yeah, curious to see how this is all going to play out. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited for the Tom King run on Wonder Woman, but uh, if he wasn't writing it or if he's not going to stay on it too long, how about give Josie Campbell a shot? Because um, although I wouldn't go so far as to say she's nailing Wonder Woman here because this, this is not a, just a Wonder Woman focused story. We've got Detective Chimp and we've got John Constantine as well, and they almost get equal time. But I don't know. I guess if you put Wonder Woman in the title – it's going to sell more than it will if you put Detective Chimp or Constantine in there. Um, but yeah, I was impressed with the voice that Josie Campbell provided for uh, for Diana here. So overall, I thought the story was pretty strong. What do you think? I, um, I I thought the story was was entertaining, thanks to with no surprise to John Constantine and the monkey character Bibbo. Uh, the detective chimp, uh, their rapport, their dialogue between them was hilarious. John Constantine explaining to them, making it clear to Bibbo and the Wonder Woman, look, these nightmares, we're going to be attacked by our own worst nightmares. And then I found it hilarious. John Constantine rattles off a bunch of examples of nightmares. And he mentioned, he mentions, you could be a monkey with an organ grinder. He mentions that to Bibbo. <laughs> and and uh, he mentions so many nightmares that Bibbo starts to think of the very nightmares that John Constantine mentioned. And John Constantine said, how come you're not thinking of all these nightmares? He goes, well, because you mentioned it. And anyways, I thought it was funny. I thought it was humorous. Uh, and that, that report between John Constantine and Bibble just works so well. Josie Campbell, uh, just, she really, if I didn't know better, I think she really captured a lot of the humor and did even a better job with the humor and the dialogue between John Constantine and Bibble than Ram V did during his Justice League Dark Run. So I, I want to give her some credit in that regard. What I want to scold her for is some absurd notion she has regarding the magic lasso. This is unbelievable. Now, how many people think that the magic lasso, now every writer has their own rules on the magic lasso. Josie Campbell has Wonder Woman actually tell John Constantine and Bibble with a straight face that if you hold on to the magic lasso, and as long as you don't want to let go, you can, as long as you, you have to, if, if, you, if you don't want to let go, nobody can make you let go of the lasso. You got to do so willingly which is absolute hogwash and nonsense. But that was the thing. She she has at one point, she's got John and John Constantine and, and Bibble uh, uh, and, you know, and her hanging on to the magic lasso and say, don't, just don't let go. We'll stay together. Just don't let go. Because as long as you don't, you have to, as long as you aren't willingly letting go, we're all going to stay together. Well, that's nonsense. And of course it doesn't work at all to the surprise of no one, but that's my minor little nitpick, but every writer screws that, you know, has some ridiculous rule. Uh, but beyond that, 
I do. I think Wonder Woman fears becoming a monster. No, I I, I don't. Uh, you're right. That's that's the only thing I could get to that Wonder Woman apparently fears becoming a monster. Do I actually think that is true to the character? I really don't. Not at all. I I think I could come up with other things. I could speculate, but I could be wrong too. I could be wrong too because everyone's got their own version of Wonder Woman. So I guess I'll go with that. Wonder Woman battles monsters all the time. You know, she battles gods all the time. It doesn't matter how ugly they are. They always, she not only saves them, uh, she'll also resurrect them. Uh, she won't do that for other human beings, but she'll do that to gods and demigods and monsters. But uh, I digress. I won't go on a Wonder Woman rant. But I was actually, probably this is one of the better Night Terror uh, uh, tie-ins this week. I, I will admit that. Thanks to John Constantine and the detective chimp. And give all the credit to the man and the monkey, huh? That that's right. Yes, exactly right. All right. Well, uh, there is a backup starring Nubia, uh, oh. written by <laughs> Stephanie Williams, art by Megan Hetrick, colors by Marisa Louise, letters by Becca Carey. Apparently, Nubia's nightmare—it all goes back to being a guardian for the Well of Souls. Maybe she just she can't seem to let that go. So many artists or writers focus on that. Like yeah. she, maybe she just doesn't feel worthy of being queen of the Amazons and, and thinks she belongs back there guarding it. So she goes to the well of the soul. She speaks to somebody who she thinks is one person, but turns out to be somebody else turns out to be the goddess Gaia in disguise. Who's apparently been corrupted. Um, and that's basically it. There's not that much that happens in the story. I wasn't really impressed with the art. And at this point, Nubia to me is starting to feel more and more like a character whose potential is being squandered. Um, because she's just not doing anything interesting. The story's boring, uh, yeah. unfortunately. So, and yeah, I mean, I've been really impressed with Megan Hetrick's art before, um, but I don't know if this was rushed or what. But it just felt, it felt very rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't feel very finished or polished at all. So, yeah, wasn't wasn't really feeling this one. Yeah, I, I was actually curious to know one of the things that I wish uh, writer Stephanie Williams would have explored here is does that is does the nightmare cloud that spread all over the earth did it infect Paradise Island? Was Themyscira affected? I'm assuming it was, but I'm not really sure because I mean maybe it maybe it wasn't. Uh, because is Nubia dreaming when she goes to the Well of Souls and gets pulled in and meets this 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 ugly form of Gaia, who and Gaia being, I guess, Mother Earth, or is this is this all a dream, or is this is this in the waking world? Again, this lack of clarity uh, by yet another writer, uh, and again, I, I I hesitate to blame the writers on this because I don't know what the communication was between Joshua Williamson, who's writing the event. And uh, or must have, you know, we know Joshua Williamson didn't give particularly good instructions on uh, Dark Crisis, gave disastrous instructions. We got that horrible World Without a Justice League that didn't make any sense either. And this one here, we just got we got so many opportunities squandered. The, the lack of clarity in these tie ins in terms of just having a cohesive narrative. And, you know, who's looking for the Nightmare Stone again? Again, uh, obviously, no one no one thinks it's on the mascara uh but wouldn't it be interesting if we had clues and we could actually put the clues together and all the tie-ins and we you and i could argue about where the nightmare stone is and say no flash has it no it's in green lantern's nightmare no it's in flashes no it's in wonder woman's and we'd have all these clues but no work was done whatsoever by any of the writers they did not work together that wonderful interview they gave where they talked about they were going to communicate and be creatively uh you know uh collaborative all nonsense, not true, and n- no more is there evidence of that than looking at this event. 
rant over. Sorry. Yeah, that's, I mean, and here's the thing. This is part of the reason why we were very wary and not excited about this event. Like DC hasn't had a good track record um, recently when doing these kind of crossover events. So, uh, all right. Well, maybe we feel differently about Night Terror Superman, number one, written by Joshua Williamson. Tom Riley is the artist. Nathan Fairbairn on colors, letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, you know, you mentioned wanting Insomnia to show up, and he does show up in this uh, in this issue. So, what do you think of this overall? Well, this was uh, I, uh, this was probably one of the slightly better ones, as it bloody well should be, because it's written by Joshua Williamson, who is the guy that was given instructions. I'm assuming to all the other writers in terms of what you know what to do with this event, and so I, you know, I, I didn't. Uh, th- this wasn't this wasn't bad. I mean, I didn't I, I didn't mind it. I uh, I will say that uh, this is called Man of Screams, and it, it would appear that Superman he discovers early on, very quickly, that he's in a dream because he you know he's he's basically at the Daily Planet, and it almost looks like a 1950s version of the Daily Planet. Uh, and uh, Perry White ends up you know telling him that you know. Good work, you know. You don't. You can relax. Superman can relax. Clark, you can relax. The whole world has been saved forever, and thanks, of course, of course to Lex Luthor. And I could even see that being an aspect of maybe one of Superman's dreams, uh, which is slowly going to turn into a nightmare because, you know, because it's related to Williamson's theme in so far in a Superman run, where Lex has always been telling Superman, "Look, you and I together, we could rule the world, or we could save the world," and so finally. It would, it would appear in this dreamscape that, in fact, Lex Luthor and Superman have been successful in eliminating and making peace on Earth. Now, <laughs> I guess, is that Superman's nightmare? I don't know. Superman knows it's a dream. And then it would appear that Perry White is really insomnia and uh, he, uh, insomnia realizing that Superman discovers, discovers it's a dream creates a huge tidal wave for Metropolis and Clark Kent tries to change into Superman and then he realizes his body, he's got a scarred S carved into his, his skin. And, and the, one of the first things, uh, Perry White, who turns in, as he's turning into insomnia, says to Superman, it's a nightmare, Superman, but I can help you wake up. Just tell me where the nightmare stone is. Like, now, of all the heroes, now, you know, how many times do we get, you know, insomnia... He has never asked any other hero that question. I think he maybe hinted at it with Batman, but I mean, I mean, just ask the question. I mean, some of these heroes, you know, I mean, that 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 would have been that would have tied in all these tie-ins some way. Instead, we get tie-ins like we talked about Nightwing, where we have no idea what's going on. I mean, this actually ties it in, and Superman telling him, you know, what the hell is a nightmare stone? And meanwhile, we got all this other chaos going off, uh, going around all around the Earth, and he he confronts the Man of Screams, which is a which is a nightmarish version of himself, where Superman himself becomes a monster and a destroyer of the very world he wants to protect, including Krypton itself. And I, I actually thought it was handled very well, and the visuals here are really really good. Uh, Tom Riley on the visuals, I thought there's a wonderful visual of the man of screams chopping earth in half and blood and gore and it looks it looks really good and i think it really works and uh it, it's quite obvious that uh 
that Superman knows it's a nightmare and he knows he's now aware that the nightmare stone is something that insomnia wants. And as he's battling insomnia, all of a sudden Kara shows up and it's revealed. Kara says she's, she, Kara travels into Superman's dream, Superman's nightmare from her own nightmare. Now, I don't know if Superman is just, if Kara is just a figment of his nightmarish imagination or if Kara really is bringing her nightmare into Superman's Superman's nightmare because different undead versions of Supergirl follow Supergirl into Superman's uh, nightmare. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. And at the end, all of a sudden, it shows Superman sleeping. So we know he's dreaming and... We get a revelation at the end that I really enjoyed, and that is it would appear that Atlanteans are unaffected by the nightmare gas or the nightmare cloud because Aquaman, Mira, Andy, Jackson Hyde, um, and Garth, and uh, Tula come, up, ca- come across the body of Superman sleeping on a beach, and uh, they're going to try, obviously, to save him or to wake him up, uh, but... Whether or not that's advisable, we'll have to wait in the second issue. But I thought this was a this was the best Night Terrors issue so far, as it should be, because it actually ties into what the central narrative is and what the actual point of these tie-ins is supposed to be. Looking for the Nightmare Stone, and we got some pretty great visuals and a story on top of it. Yeah, it's not a real surprise, being that Night Terrors is written by Joshua Williamson, and you know Williamson is is handling this, so it makes sense this would tie in more closely. Um, and it, it's, it's less about, you know, maybe what Superman, his actual nightmares are and more, you know, dealing with the MacGuffin search of finding the nightmare, uh, nightmare stone. So, you know, that, that worked for me uh, on a lot of levels as well. I wasn't as big of a fan of the Tom Riley art. Uh, it was okay. Um, just felt like it could have been a little cleaner. And I also don't know that his art style really suits Kind of the horror book, but you're right in that uh, the Supergirl Kara, you know, breaking through from her dream to Kal-El's dream um, was uh, was a cool moment, and her nightmare much more um, predictable, I guess you'd say. And it really made me realize, especially when you juxtapose it against Superman, right? Just how many different versions there have been of That's, Supergirl in her costume yeah. over the years, right? Like. When the, we had the new 52 and you put the collar on Superman, you know, the higher collar and certainly getting rid of the trunks on the outside of the uniform, people lost their damn minds about <laughs> him not having the underwear on the outside of the costume. Like it was it was crazy. And of course, that underwear is back on, on the outside of the costume. Nobody cares when you change Kara's costume, apparently. Because, you know, when you look at this and you realize, yeah, so right now she's got the, you know, little leather jacket, you know, full covered legs or whatever. But, yeah, the 70s costume that's kind of front and center in this where she had the headband and the little skirt. Or you talk about uh, in the Peter David run uh, or uh, and then also when she first came back in the pages of Superman Batman where she was wearing basically a white T-shirt with the Superman symbol on it. Just so many different versions of her costume over the years. The Red Lantern version is there as well. Um, and yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares when you change Kara's costume. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, great to see the Aquaman family show up at the end. And apparently they're they're not being put to sleep by insomnia. So how can they help uh, fight him off? We'll have to wait and see. 
Uh, all right. Last Nightmare uh, or Night Terror's book tie-in we're going to talk about is Catwoman. Tinny Howard, who writes the regular Catwoman story, is writing this as well. Layla Leyes does the art. Marisa Louise on colors. Becca Carey on letters. So much like Punchline, this – even more so than Punchline, actually. This is the book that made me – like when I started reading this, I forgot it was a Night Terror's book for a little while. Yeah. Like that's how much of this fit into the regular narrative that Tinny Howard is writing in the regular Catwoman book. And it gave context. It gave context. Like we talked when we were reviewing recent yeah. issues of Catwoman, like why is she breaking out of prison? What exactly is she trying to do? And you read this story and there's some exposition when she's talking to her sister and she's saying, yeah, she, you, you tried to take over the, you know, as like the crime boss of Gotham city to, to run crime benevolently and it's adding context to to Tinny Howard's uh, run. Now, you could say that's a good thing, or you could turn around and say, well, that should have been more apparent what she was trying to do in the run as it happened. Uh, and, you know, we can argue about that. But be that as it may, I, I forgot that this was – and I was like, wait, didn't her sister – didn't she send her sister away to be safe? Like, how was her sister back and, yeah. uh, you know, back as Sister Zero again? And it wasn't – then I remember, oh, wait – this is a dream. This is a dream. So I give Tinny Howard a lot of credit for tying it in and keeping the, the tone consistent. And there's a, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that the people that are writing these Night Terrors books should be the ones that are on the regular titles. That's not always, uh, that's not always the case. And the other thing that really threw me was the first time we get a good look at Selena in the book without her cowl on. And she's got some scarves on her face and basically blind in one eye. Um, kind of like Nick Fury getting scratched by Goose or whatever that cat's name is. Uh, and I was like, wait, when did that happen? And then that, yeah, that was where I was like, oh, that's right. This is Night Terror Dream. So uh, the Layla Louise art, I thought, worked really well. The colors uh, are done really well as well to give it kind of that muted palette to make it feel like a horror book. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. You know, maybe part of it because it, it was... Um, it was giving me context to what's going on in the, the regular Catwoman book recently. So yeah, I thought this was, was pretty strong. Um, again, no real surprises in terms of what, what Catwoman is afraid of. Obviously she's afraid of, you know, not protecting those that she, that she cares about most, um, you know, her sister and having Bruce not recognize her and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, pretty strong issue. I thought, what'd you think? Yeah. I thought, I thought it was, uh, uh, I thought it was more nuanced than that, and I and this was, this was probably uh, I, I was if I had to pick probably my favorite because I'm I, I get to this I like what Williamson did with Superman and even though I maybe got to give it to Williamson because at least Insomnia shows up and asks where the Nightmare Stone is, this one here feels like it, it is a necessary chapter in Tina Howard's actual Catwoman run because what is we get a lot of revelations here that are huge. The last time, when was the last time we saw Selena Kyle's sister, Maggie? Well, I'll tell you where it was, where Father Valley tried to kill, almost killed his, her sister, Maggie. And that was during Ram V's run. And uh, Maggie's, uh, Maggie Kyle, uh, uh, Catwoman's sister, is actually Sister Zero. And, and she's also Sister Magdalene. And I love what Teeny Howard does here. She's done her homework. 
The differences between Maggie Kyle and her sister Selena are obvious. Selena was always sort of the darker side of the tracks. They were they were they were sisters, obviously. They were siblings, but it was always Selena that was doing the protecting and that and ironically, while Selena essentially grew up not having much of faith because she was more she was streetwise but without faith. With, uh, whereas Maggie developed faith and became developed a relationship with God, and that's that's where ultimately Maggie becoming Sister Zero. That's really where her faith comes in. And then how this ties into the nightmare is obviously this is as you said clearly Selena Kyle must be dreaming. And, and yet she's explaining as she's going along, she meets Batman for the first time. It's clear that the Batman she's meeting is someone who doesn't remember her. And this is an early version of Batman. She meets, an, she meets what she thinks is signs that the Joker's showing up because the young boys are putting white paint on their face. And she's afraid that the Joker's going to show up and destroy and bring chaos to the order that she has imposed on Gotham City by controlling all the mafia families. So in many ways here, uh, you know, in many ways, this is hinting at what Catwoman's ultimate fear is. And what's fascinating about this so much, and I got to give Teeny Howard credit, is that we know that we are headed into Gotham War. And we know that Catwoman is going to have a war with Batman over how to rule, how to basically bring order to Gotham. And Catwoman's idea is to have sort of like a benevolent mafia, if that makes any sense. And she wants to control the mafia. You know, Batman then going to fly with Batman and it doesn't really fly here. And even, and but even her sister, Sister Zero, her sister Maggie thinks, you know, questions her motives as well, but yet knows that Selena loves her. And so it's all these conflicting emotions here that really, you know, really shines through. And does, it does a really, really good job in terms of what the, the, the inner conflict that Selena Kyle might have. I still think your plan is insane, by the way. It doesn't, it doesn't remove the convoluted nature of Teeny Howard's Catwoman run up until now. I stand by all my previous criticisms, but I want to give her credit here where at least what her ideas, they're coming. I feel like, like you that I feel finally we're getting a little bit of clarity as to exactly some, some more ration, rational thinking into what Selena is thinking about. And the irony is that it's coming in a nightmare <laughs> where, where, uh, you know, things are falling apart and, and even her relationship and in terms of what she fears. I'm, and, and that's the other fascinating thing is, you know, does Selena fears, she fears losing control. And is that why one of the central figures in the nightmare is a young boy with white makeup symbolizing chaos in the Joker? Uh, does she fear losing Bruce Wayne or losing Batman? Lo fear disappointing him? Fear of losing her sister? Disappointing her sister? Uh, I mean, you can all, in this one issue, Teeny Howard has impressed me more with her knowledge of Catwoman. And this makes me feel that, God forbid, maybe there's hope here moving into Gotham War. And I'm really curious to see how this particular nightmare that Selena is going through uh, wraps up. Yeah, we'll have to see how it all uh, plays out in the end. Uh, but yeah, I, again, Tinny, somebody I was supposed to have on the show. I lost her contact information, totally on me. Um, and I have no idea where I put it. She's going to be at Comic-Con. I'll talk to her. I'll get her contact info again. She'll be on soon. Uh, so that does it in terms of the books that we're going to talk about in detail. As Rocky mentioned, uh, unfortunately, for some reason, we couldn't access the Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker number three issue. So we weren't able to talk about that. In terms of collections out this week from DC, 
Batman Arkham Catwoman has a trade paperback. Uh, so that collects volume, um, I think it's volume one of Catwoman. Um, so it's Batman uh, and Batman number one and number three through, uh, 55, Catwoman, the 1989 series one through four, Catwoman, the 1993 series 54, Catwoman, the 2002 series 25, Catwoman Secret Files and Origins, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, 70 through 71. Like, that's a big, big throwback there uh, to an earlier time. Also, speaking of Catwoman, we have the Batman One Bad Day Catwoman hardcover. We also have the Batman One Bad Day Mr. Freeze hardcover. The Joker presents a puzzle box trade paperback, which was a digital first Joker series. Also, Young Justice Targets trade paperback, which was also a digital first. And then finally, the Human Target Book 2 hardcover, which collects... Uh, issues 7 through 12 of Tom King and Greg Smallwoods, The Human Target. I cannot recommend that highly enough if you haven't read it, uh, but maybe you want to wait and get the hardcover that uh, collects the entire series. That's you know perfectly fine as well, but definitely read it, definitely pick it up because it is uh, absolutely fantastic. So, uh, all right, Rocky, what else did you uh, want to add or book of the week? Well, book of the week. I I, I feel that I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with two here. I'm gonna I'm gonna break it down between a nightmare, a night terrors choice, and a, a just a a, a, a non night terrors event choice. I gotta go with my pick of the week. I'm gonna go with the. I'm gonna go with the vigil because I I actually thought that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, it encapsulated the, the psychological profiles of the entire team, and I feel I got to know the team uh, very well. And I, I thought it was entertaining, and I'm more invested in the vigil now than than ever before. Uh, that's my first choice, and then uh, I'm gonna have to go with Catwoman for my uh, for my night terrors because I was impressed by Teeny Howard. I like you. I was sort of taken aback by the fact that I felt I got some insights into how she's make what Selena might be thinking. Crazy as she is, it 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 sort of it actually. I actually began to maybe some of the pieces began to fill in, and I was uh, found myself impressed. So, what about yourself? Uh, I got to go with the vigil as well with the honorary mention for Hawk, uh, Hawk girl. thought that started out really well, but the vigil, it's the best comic DC's putting out right now. So I got to go with that. It's not really close. Uh, one other thing I want to mention there, I don't know why it's not listed. On, we didn't get a preview for it. It's not listed under the DC solicits, but uh, Wonder Woman War of the Gods has a special edition reprint. That's the 1987 George Perez um, event that uh, I have to admit I never read. I tried to read it. Again, it's a bunch of Olympian gods. Didn't float my boat. I didn't read it. But uh, I mentioned at the top that I was going to talk about a few non-DC books that I've had a chance to catch up on recently. Man, you guys want to read some amazing stuff. World Tree by James Tynan. Oh, my God. That book's amazing. Uh, and the it's only topped right now by my favorite current comic that's coming out, No One from writers uh, Kyle Higgins and Brian Bucciolato, art by uh, Borges, uh, Geraldo Borges. Absolutely amazing book. And what's even better is the fact that he got Rachel Lee Cook and Patton Oswalt to do a podcast that ties in. So you read the issue, then you listen to the podcast after you've read the issue for that month. And it provides more context and gives you kind of more ambiance uh, and fills in some of the things that just they didn't have real estate for on the page. But 
Um, it's, it's amazing. It's such a multimedia experience. Leave it to Kyle Higgins to come up with this idea. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's so fantastic. It's so good. So, yeah. uh, yeah, that okay. does it for this episode. Uh, anything else you want to add Rocky? I uh, know just, I, I wish you uh, the best of times at the San Diego comic-con and I hope you give out some live tweets and I look forward to hearing about your experiences when you get back. Yeah. I'm going to be absolutely exhausted when we're doing this, uh, episode next week. Uh, <laughs> you know, people, Oh, have fun on vacation, man. This is not, I work harder at comic-con than I do any other time of the year. Like for those four and a half, five days, it is like non, nonstop. Like I literally yeah. have something scheduled like every 15 minutes. Um, well, we, we can, we can push, we can review Tuesday next week, give you an extra day of rest. Yeah, maybe, maybe we will. We'll see. But what's interesting is obviously everybody's heard about the, the actors are on strike, the writers are on strike. So there were panels and uh, press rooms and red carpets at San Diego Comic-Con that were canceled, including the biggest party that everybody tries to get into, the Entertainment Weekly Party, which for an average person, the only way you can get in is to buy a ticket for like three grand because um, it's invite only. Um, but that was canceled, which again, that's, that just blows my mind. But it makes sense because the yeah. actors aren't allowed to do any promotion right now. So yeah. there's a lot of things that have been canceled. So people are like, oh, you're going to have more free time, right? It's like, that's not the stuff I cover. So it doesn't, it doesn't affect me at all. Uh, I'm it just doesn't affect comics. Yeah, it doesn't affect comics. Um, so it doesn't, therefore it doesn't affect me. Uh, the only, the only thing it's going to do where it may affect me is that there's going to be less people standing in line for Hall H. So the floor is going to be more crowded. So it's going to be harder for me to get from point A to point B. Um, but whatever. I mean, it's San Diego Comic Con. Your worst day at Comic Con is better than any other day that you're not. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good time. Like I said, make sure you follow us on social media, the comic source on Twitter to, uh, see some cool pictures and, uh, my schedule when I went to fill it out, my after hours schedule filled up first, actually, uh, which is kind of fun, you know, getting invited to the creator only parties, uh, after having done this for so many years and just being able to hang out with people who've become friends is a lot of fun because most of those parties as opposed to the public parties where you have to buy a ticket uh the the publisher parties have open bar so i have to pay i have to pace myself because it kicks <laughs> off uh 5 p.m on thursday it's the first publisher party i'm going to um followed by the bad idea party on friday my saturday's still up in the air i haven't decided where i'm going i i'm probably not going to the hellfire gala that one is interesting because it's they have sold some tickets but the vip area is invite only Right. I was invited to go to the invite only, but I was supposed to rent a tux. I didn't. I, so I'm probably not. Is that, that. Or, or, I thought you have to be a mutant to get into that or what? Yeah. You have to know a mutant, uh, <laughs> you have to be a mutant or no, no a mutant. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, uh, appreciate the, uh, support as always, everybody. Thanks for joining. Don't forget to head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. If you haven't done so already, comic space, boom, exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, leave a comment. All that stuff really helps out. Conversely, if you always watch us on YouTube and you want to be sure to check out the other audio-only content, uh, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source, and subscribe. As Rocky mentioned, I just recently interviewed Jimmy Palmiotti about his Trigger Girl 6 Justice campaign that's going on right now. It's already fully funded. Find out what the story is all about. 
hear about joining the, the great community that Jimmy's really established over there on Kickstarter. And then I also talked to uh, author Rich Johnson recently. He put out a book called Hulk Worldbreaker Hero Icon, and it's all about different eras of the Hulk. You can go and read and get an overview of kind of the entire history of the Hulk. It doesn't go big into depth because it's not this textbook, right? It's There's some prose, but there's also a lot of panels and great comic book art. But what's cool is you flip to the back of the book and you say, okay, here's the, you know, world breaker or uh, uh, immortal Hulk era that was covered on these pages. Well, that if I want to learn more about that era of the Hulk, I go and I read this these issues, right? So it's really a guide on how to learn more about the Hulk. He also has one for Spider-Man and Captain America. So if you're one of those people that, you know, loves a particular character and, you know, maybe you came across it from the MCU, but you don't know where to start, it can feel overwhelming. That's a great guide. Uh, again, Captain America, Spider-Man, Hulk out so far, and he's working on Avengers currently. So go check out that interview as well. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate everybody joining as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.